questions about uh, space policy and China and all that good stuff. If you go to the other side of midnight, for those of you who are new to the show, that's our URL, theothersideofmidnight.com. Click on that, and that will take you to our homepage. On the homepage at the very top, there's a banner which says for Saturday, uh, May 15th, um, what the hell really happened on Mars with our guest tonight, John Brandenburg? Click on that. That will take you to John's guest page. Under the banner, you will see fast links to items. That takes you to the section of Radio with Pictures where we have images and links and all that good stuff. Click on my name. That will take you down to my items. Number one, of course, is the uh, uh, CBS News report. I figured it would CBS. Given that I'm, you know, an old alum of CBS News, uh, Bill Harwood does a really good job. And the problem is you can't report stuff you can't report if the source doesn't tell you. And the Chinese are being very mysterious. I mean, when they landed in 2013 on the moon, within hours, they gave us video. They gave us stills. They gave us, within a few hours, a color panorama. It's now been like 24 hours and counting, and there's nothing from the Chinese, not even an image. So anyway, um, item number two, there is an animation. If you go to click on number two, this is one of their new services uh, called Global Link, um, and it shows a really kind of cool landing with some, you know, jazzy animation showing the radar beams as they uh, lower themselves on retro rockets. No sky cranes for the Chinese. They're using the uh, Viking approach, which was basically parachutes after the heat shield and the entry. And then they go to rockets and they lower themselves. And it all apparently worked. So they're sitting on the surface. What's curious is there's no further information. Okay. Now, at the same time, the Chinese have an orbiter, which, of course, is still in orbit, still taking data from orbit, uh, circling Mars. There is also another country present, in addition to all the previous spacecraft from U.S. missions and the European Space Agency. Um, there is the United Arab Emirates uh, and their unmanned mission called HOPE. Well, if you look at item number three, they released some images a couple of days ago, which are taken in a narrow ultraviolet uh, spectral line of um, hydrogen, the atom, not the molecule. And um, these were taken on the 24th and 25th of April, just a few weeks ago. What they show is the distribution of hydrogen, both around high noon. The first image uh, there at the top is the high noon image with the sun behind the spacecraft. You'll notice that the the right limb is brighter than the left limb. That's because it's been exposed to solar heating longer, which makes the atmosphere warmer, which makes it fluffier, and then it's disassociated by ultraviolet light. So there's a greater concentration of uh, ionized hydrogen on the right limb than on the left. And then if you look at the bottom panel, this is now, uh, as the spacecraft moved over, so the left side of Mars is in night, the right side of Mars is still in daylight, you can see how bright the hydrogen is uh, surrounding Mars on the right side. It's almost missing on the left-hand side, meaning, of course, that the hydrogen is released from water 
water vapor in the atmosphere of Mars. There's not a lot, but there's some, and that's a lot of hydrogen. Gosh, I wonder if that feeds directly into our whole questioning as to the density and the composition of the Mars atmosphere. Wouldn't it be interesting if these other missions are telling a different story? Anyway, moving on down, uh, while all this is going on, in the mainstream, there has been a paper published uh, in the last few days. Let me give you the actual title. Um, it is called, I can pick it up here. Um, it's an international team of scientists from countries that include the United States, France, and China, oddly enough. And uh, this particular paper was published in Advances in Microbiology, and the uh, team analyzed images taken by NASA's Opportunity and Curiosity rovers, plus the Mars Reconnaissance Orbiter high-rise camera. And they have been looking at details on the surface, particularly from the Curiosity missions, uh, showing little spherical thingies that are on the sands in front of the cameras. And then a few days later, <clears throat> the little spherical thingies get bigger and more of them appear. And anyway, the thrust of the paper is that this is contemporaneous extant life on Mars, rather complex life, fungi, and even mushrooms. And I mean, this would be, you know, Nobel Prize winning stuff if, it, of course, it is confirmed. And if, if you read the paper, what you then need to do is to kind of read between the lines because the popular science uh, uh, article on the scientific paper that has been published is somewhat negative and raises the question of, is it just the Martian winds blowing sand away and uncovering other things? And, you know, I'll let you guys be the judge, but it's kind of interesting. We now have uh, several missions at Mars representing a wide variety of international space efforts, including now a newly landed Chinese uh, lander and rover, um, Perseverance rover mission uh, with a little ingenuity. Uh, we've got the United Arab Emirates upstairs. We've got uh, European spacecraft circling. We've got other NASA spacecraft circling. We have an armada looking at Mars and in this environment, in this political environment, we have a mainstream group of scientists basically saying, well, if Percy's looking for microfossils of ancient bacteria, uh, they should maybe be looking more carefully, given that we're supposedly on the bottom of an ancient lake. Jezero Crater is an ancient lake. Jezero actually means lake. Um, there might be current life in view of the cameras. All you have to do is kind of compare them, take a few pictures, wait a few weeks, see if something, as they did in the paper with curiosity data and spirit and opportunity, see if something appears where there was nothing before. Uh, that would be such a game changer if current life, even microbial life, were discovered by international scientists while these missions are avidly pursuing you know, signs of ancient water, signs of ancient microfossils, et cetera, et cetera. Not, of course, even considering the model we have put forward and which we have provided now for several weeks of our coverage of this mission, 
Perseverance mission, the obvious evidence of extraordinary, intelligently designed architecture. And toward the end of the program, the third hour, we're going to be joined by some members of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team, and we're going to discuss some of the new data on the Jezero Dome. And uh, anyway, I'll, I'll wait till we get into the conversation with John to get into any more detail. Item number six, um, uh, I'm sorry, number five. While the mainstream is thinking about and actually uh, looking at a paper purportedly showing data supporting current life, uh, mushrooms are not trivial. There is a uh, very interesting story in the BBC. Could humans have contaminated Mars with our life? We've been sending spacecraft there for the last, you know, several decades. There's something like 30 spacecraft and landers to Mars since the space age began. And a number of the landers, of course, um, uh, there have been attempts to sterilize. But when you start looking at the biological you know, aspects of clean rooms, it turns out it's really, really, really hard to make spacecraft hardware that's going to function across space and then land on another planet and continue to function there. It's really hard to sterilize it to where there are no microorganisms. So they do a kind of a Monte Carlo analysis and they say, well, if we can get the number below X number per square foot or per square meter, the odds of those few remaining surviving and multiplying are such and such. And so tonight we really don't know whether we have, the term is forward contamination, meaning taken viable organisms that somehow remain active and viable in interplanetary space for the many, many months it takes to cruise from Earth to Mars and then go through the entry process and then land and be exposed to the rather hostile environment, as we have been told, uh, of the Martian surface at the moment, to have all that happen and have something survive and then multiply. I mean, we know that life on Earth requires liquid water to really thrive. Um, that and, of course, nutrients. Well, liquid water on Mars right now is very, very, very hard to come by. Uh, first, because of the pressures, again, according to the model, and second, because of the extraordinary range of temperatures. I mean, it can go from a balmy, like 20 below during daytime, where we are now, uh, Sirtis Major, Jezero Crater, down to like 130, 35 below zero at night, um, which, of course, any little organisms, microorganisms with very small mass to very large surface area, they would be frozen, you know, like instantly. And do they thaw out? Have they acclimated to an extraordinarily weird freeze-thaw cycle, uh, lack of liquid water? In other words, the odds are that we really have not seeded Mars with terrestrial life. But how do we really know? And if life on Mars is based, like life on Earth, uh, on DNA, and there are some very interesting uh, circumstantial uh, sets of evidence that indicate that could in fact be the case. How would you distinguish Mars life from that you brought with you? 
unless, of course, you spot a plant. You know, I don't think we've taken spores of mushrooms and things like that. That's why paper and item number four is so interesting. Anyway, be that as it may, um, our guest this morning is going to uh, uh, tell us about some rather intriguing data which completely bypasses all of this because the data John has been carefully amassing ever since um, I asked him to become part of the independent Mars investigation team back in the 1980s, which we managed out of SRI, um, he's kind of been hooked on Mars. In fact, let me give you a little thumbnail sketch of Dr. Brandenburg. Dr. John Brandenburg is a theoretical plasma physicist born in Rochester, Minnesota, grew up in Medford, Oregon, and obtained his BA in physics with a mathematics minor from Southern Oregon University in 1975. He obtained his MS in 1977 and a PhD in plasma physics, both from the University of California, Davis in 1981. John presently is working as a consultant to Morningstar Applied Physics, LLC, and is a part-time instructor of astronomy, physics, and mathematics at Madison College and several other learning institutions in Madison, Wisconsin. Before this, John worked at Orbital Technologies in Madison as senior propulsion scientist, working on space plasma technologies, nuclear fusion, and advanced space propulsion. He is the principal investigator of the MET, Microelectrothermal Plasma Thruster, using water propellant for space propulsion. He has previously worked on SDI, the Clementine Mission to the Moon, rocket plume regolith interactions on Moon and Mars, the vortex theory of rocket engine design, combined sakharov kaluza klein theory of field unification for purposes with space propulsion and Mars science, and he's also performed an architecture study for a human Mars mission using solar electric propulsion. And the rest of his bio you can read there on the other side of Midnight's uh, guest page. With that, John, come on down and welcome back the other side of midnight. Well, Dick, it's it's really a pleasure and honor to be on your show. Let me let me start off by asking you, what do you think of what the Chinese apparently pulled off yesterday? Well, uh, they may have landed, but like at uh, two hundred meters per second. <laughs> do you really you really think that? Well. Anyone who's uh, studied the Chinese, uh, you know, the P, I call it the PRC space program. I, you know, because Chinese culture permeates all of Southeast, all of Asia. And uh, many of the people who are in Southeast Asia who have Chinese ancestry have no claim, make no bones that uh, they detest the uh, mainland uh, China uh, government, and, which is a communist government. So uh, I will just simply say that the utopia planum turned out to be a very hazardous place to land. It was just dumb luck that we didn't uh, uh, destroy the land. Well, when yeah, we landed as, the far, as far as I remember, Jim Martin, who was the project manager out of Langley, the Langley um, uh, Center for NASA down there in Virginia, they thought they had, from infrared studies and cooling curves and all that, a nice flat level place to land. 
And when they got the first pictures yes, back, did. when they got the first pictures back, it's littered with rocks from horizon to horizon. It was it was stunning that they got down safely. So why would I, the Chinese? I, when pick, I heard that, why would the Chinese pick that place to land? I don't know. Uh, they got they got Mao Zedong uh, on their on their money. That's all I can say. Uh, let's just say that uh, the fact that they haven't released any pictures or any other data or and are being mysterious uh, means that uh, it's it's possible that the uh, the thing crash landed. And, uh, well, I don't think that's true because we do have one piece of data which says they got telemetry back that the solar panels opened up and the ramp extended for the rover, which is going to drive off just like you two drove off the... Yeah. So Who reported it, that? The Chinese. So, oh, well, if, if we hear that from Goldstone uh, tracking, which can also pick up the signals, then then I would be more persuaded. I'm, I'll, I'll just say I'm, I'm a little skeptical at this point. Generally, the first thing you do when you land, you take a picture of the foot pad of your lander to make sure it's not sinking into the Martian surface or something. Right. So um, I just, uh, it's unusual that they would not release pictures. And um, well, and not really. Suppose they were in the middle of an ancient ruin. I'm being, well, that's I'm being, always possible. I'm, I'm being, but I don't think. I think that was they're out on the ocean bed, but we don't even know where they landed. You know, uh, but you know, they're they're eventually going to land on Mars. It's you know, uh, we did it back in 1976. Of course, they're going to figure out how to do it eventually. Well, wait, wait, wait. Uh, we did it. John, 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 you have to listen to what I'm asking, okay? Thank you. We did it in 1976 before anybody had ever done any of this, okay? They've now had yes. 50 years to basically steal all our stuff, to be crass, to look at all our data. Everything we publish is public domain. So they have entry curves. They have atmospheric densities. They have all kinds of technical specs on how you make a spacecraft that survives EDL. So I would be surprised if they didn't succeed. I'm given that they're saying that certain things happened after landing. And if, if, if they were lying, there are other nations. You mentioned the DSN, which is under NASA control. There's also the Europeans. There's the Russians. There's Japan. There's uh, all kinds of independent space programs now, which could basically say the Chinese are lying if they're lying. So I really think that there's a constraint there that would, shall we say, make them more cautious. So if they claim that the lander performs certain functions after landing, and if we get a carrier wave after landing, you may not be able to decode right. it, but if there's a carrier wave coming from the surface, from the lander, which would be separate frequencies from their orbiter, then you would know they're still alive. And since NASA and ESA have not said, nope, it disappeared, like remember Beagle, when the little Beagle disappeared? 
I know Beagle became roadkill. It was terrible. Yeah. Anyway, so no, I I wanted that one to succeed. And and by the way, the same the British, you know, and the or just the Europeans were in charge of Beagle. They had the benefit of all sorts of information from us, probably provided eagerly by Jet Propulsion Lab and NASA. Yep. And they still. Um, Landing on Mars is a real trick. It's it's harder than the moon. It's oh, got yes, more gravity. Yes. It's got an atmosphere. You have to have a heat shield. And um, so we'll see. We'll see how it all turns out. Um, people, uh, you know, there's a school of thought that the PRC is run by a bunch of geniuses. And no, they're not. I'm sorry. And um, anyone who studied their history knows this. Uh, so anyway, but I don't want to talk bad about them. I, I just well, the thing we have to the thing we have to keep in mind, I, John, is that the political part is really separate from the technical part because you can't exert too much oh, political. No, no, Dick, you know better than that. The politics is always there. Not in terms of the engineering. Alcohol. Unless you design it correctly, it will not work. And they've had two very difficult missions to the moon, unmanned landings, robotic landings, uh, that they carried out very successfully. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and given they have this long database of what we do, I mean, the Chinese are not technical slouches. They may not care, no, much, not. They may not care much about their upper stages and lower stages, you know, their debacle <laughs> with, with the uh, Long March 5. Again, it's kind of inexplicable. I know you actually, and- actually you, you know why that happened. It was because Elon was going to be on uh, Saturday Night Live, so they had to figure that it was not a coincidence that that booster crashed on the same night he was on Saturday Night Live. It was an attempt to grab a headline. Hmm. That's what I think. Okay, let me let me ask you a so deeper question. See, I, I, I don't know. Let's, See, uh, let's, eventually, this will yeah. sort itself out. We will find. If, in fact, there is data from the Chinese lander, if, in fact, they succeeded, what I'm wanting to get into is, do you want to take any bets on what the first image, not the footbed image, but the image of the surroundings, the horizon is going to show? Because that's going to tell us, to me, an awful lot, whether China is truly independent of this kind of global mega secret space program. Or, well, it, it could show it could show, show something as provocative as a blue sky. <laughs> exactly. So I'm really looking forward to the first Chinese lander image of the sky I am too. and the horizon. Because if it shows I am too. If, if if it shows the real environment, then we'll know they're independent. If it shows the same, you know, butterscotch as all the NASA images, then we'll know. I know. Then. But, John, this is very important because it will show us that whatever's going on down here on planet Earth is not the same politics governing what's going on out there. I know. It, it's, uh, it, it's always good to have a second or a third opinion. You know, the, um, the uh, Americans have been orbiting Mars for years. The first picture of showing a frozen lake in the bottom of a crater, 
um, was released by the Europeans. And so it's always good to have other people reporting things who don't, um, who don't follow the same script. Well, this one is going to be very interesting because you were, watch, I presume, watching the Perseverance mission when we landed back on February 18th, oh, right? Oh, yeah. Remember that the, was just wonderful. Remember the first color image that came down from the hazard cam? Oh, yeah. It showed a blue sky. Yes. Yes. And then, of course, NASA yeah. freaked out and went crazy, and uh, NASA television went all cattywampus, and press conferences got canceled and it something see my feeling is there's a mutinying group inside JPL that programmed the computer to send us two sets of real data before things got weird and that's my criteria well, I have actually, I have actually seen pictures of you know um kind of uh, bar-shaped things on some of the uh, uh, manipulator arms. Mm-hmm. And what, guess what's on those bars? It's a red, blue, and green uh, LED. Right. Which means all you have to do is take a picture of that at night, and you know your color balance of your cameras is the same as the human eye. Well, so, you know, I... Uh, I actually, I actually write science fiction under the, the uh, a pen name uh, Victor Norgard, and I have two people crash on Mars. You know, they were an unplanned, unplanned landing, but they they are the first human beings basically to land on Mars, and they open the hat, they open the cockpit on their craft. And after congratulating themselves on surviving the landing, and the first thing the woman in the back seat says is, "Oh my God, the sky is blue." <laughs> and this, and she says, she says the UFO cover-up has been over for for years, but the Mars cover-up continues forever. <laughs> okay, but hold it there, John. We're uh, at the bottom of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. John Brandenburg. Members of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team will be joining us in the next uh, couple hours or so, maybe a little less. And you know I couldn't get through another Mars show without playing this. One of my favorite songs. So tonight we have the Chinese on Mars. We have Americans on Mars. We have Arabs upstairs taking images in hydrogen alpha light of an awful lot of hydrogen for the very thin atmosphere. When we come back, I'm going to talk to John about the atmosphere of Mars and see if he's going to vote uh, in favor of a different model than NASA has given us for the last 50 years. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. And I think it's going to be a long, long time. The Bring me round and get to find I'm not a man, I'm not a man 
as you continue to work on yourself, the tribe comes forward. They'll come right to your door. So just keep doing the work and it'll come together. Yep, as you increase your frequency, then you become more mature in your manifestation abilities and your other higher senses and gifts come online and then you have more power to make your world different and better and how you want it. And so that's why working on yourself is so important because then you're going to create the reality that you want rather than get sucked into the dystopia that's being created by the negative or shadow side. We're becoming uh, renaissance men and women where we have multiple skill sets and we can dance from science into art and we can use both sides of our hemispheres and we can realize how much we have to really offer and uh, grow into. And this is what's happening now. This is where we're headed into a really beautiful place. So we can rejoice in that despite the fear, despite what it looks like on the outside. This is how disease transforms. The mess in the chaos is necessary in order to see what you have before you so you can clean it up and just make decisions to change your reality. If you don't see it, how do you know it's there to even be changed or if you ignore it, right? then how can you make the differences? You can't. So the mess is before us, accept our mess, and now know that that's part of empowerment to be able to see and to be able to transform it. Hi, this is Amanda Vollmer, and I was on the other side of the news, and I really enjoyed my time discussing deeper topics and really getting to the heart of truth and the things that matter in this world and what we are doing and why we're here and and what we're heading toward. I really recommend listening in and and learning, uh, expanding your awareness and your knowledge. It's important and these are the times to do it and we're being asked to pay attention and to challenge ourselves and uh, think beyond beyond the box.
and welcome back everyone. Saturday night, May 15th, 2021, the Chinese have landed another unmanned spacecraft on the planet Mars. But why have we seen any pictures, any data, any horizons? Anyone want to take some bets that the first image that we get will have blue skies? And if they don't, if they're the same weird, murky butterscotch that doesn't agree between all of the 19 or 20 different cameras on even one rover, what kind of inferences can we, you know, draw from that? Our guest this morning is Dr. John Brandenburg. He is a plasma physicist. He has worked in both uh, secure fields and in open civilian space efforts. And uh, he is our guest for the next two and a half hours. So, John, um, let's talk Martian atmosphere. Are are you as puzzled as, as I am as to why? I mean, have you ever seen the photographs of a guy named Kittinger back in the 1950s who took a stratosphere balloon up uh, up um, to something like 70,000 feet, and then he jumped out. And there are photographs, colored photographs, showing that when he jumped out at 70,000 feet, which is way up there, the sky around him was pitch black, and you could see the curvature of the Earth, and you could see this brilliant band of the lower atmosphere, the troposphere. Now, we have been told, we've been told for many, many, many years that the um, uh, atmosphere of Mars is equivalent to the atmosphere of the Earth at about 100,000 feet. And I've got U2 imagery. I've got, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, X-15 imagery. I've got all kinds of images which show what the skies look like when the air density is one one hundredth of what we're breathing right now, and not one of them looks like all the images we have from the surface of Mars. What the hell I know. is well, you sound like you're laughing. I mean, if NASA has been lying to us I about the if NASA's been lying about the atmosphere of Mars for fifty years, what's gonna happen when the Chinese land remember totally different communist political system that would love to show up the scrungy capitalists at every opportunity, so we've been told. Sure, sure, sure. Are they going to blow the whistle? Are they going to tell us the Martian atmosphere is much denser than we've been told? Or will they go along because space is different than politics on Earth? Um, they will... Uh... If if they can take some nice pictures from the surface of Mars showing a blue sky, I think they will show that. That would just be um, that would just be a clever way of poking Uncle Sam in the eye. And um, you know the uh, it, all you got to do is look at pictures of Hubble from Hubble of Mars, and you see a blue sheen around the planet. I mean, it's just. It's it's not a it's not a pink sheen or you know russet. It's, well, for for, blue. for 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 it's people for people that want to kind of know you why you and I are kind of hipped on the color blue. What does blue indicate about a fundamental planetary atmosphere? It just means it's made of colorless ma- molecules uh, like CO two and nitrogen, and that uh, 
they scatter blue light preferentially to red light so that the that's why the Earth's sky is blue, even though all of the gases are actually colorless. So it's, it's called Raleigh scattering, and it's there's very few gases in nature that are actually colored, like chlorine or uh, or fluorine. They're they're kind of greenish. So it, basically, um, you just see you should just see blue sky on Mars. Uh, except maybe a dust, a band of dust near the near the uh, horizon, like in the Mojave Desert. Right. Imagine you're out in the Mojave, you see kind of a uh, kind of a russet colored dust band near the horizon. But if you look straight up, it's it's a deep dark blue. And uh, on Mars, it's probably much darker. It's probably closer to a violet, and and um, you probably can spot uh, some you know, brighter stars, even at, at noon. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's all just kind of, a, I think, I think they originally decided to make Mars sky red because they didn't want to be accused of faking the pictures from Mars and, you know, faking a Mars landing in Mojave. I think that was the reason, but at the same time, they're, they were, you and I both know, Dick, that there's a Mars cover-up, and it's a sideshow of the UFO cover-up. Uh, we're not alone in the universe, and we have a completely line, oh, wait, a wait, complete wait, 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 line of independence. Let me let, yes. me let me stop you there, okay? Back in the day, Mariner, sure. Mariner 4, 65, flew by, and that's where we get from the calorie experiment, the radio occultation experiment, the current published figure on the density of the Martian atmosphere, right? Uh, yeah. Okay. Martian atmosphere is... Okay, but... I but, got no problem with that. Hang on, hang on. Now we have all different space programs from different nations, some of whom, China for one, have totally opposite political systems than ours. How do you wind sure. up with an international conspiracy to lie for 50 years about an entire planet's atmosphere on a planet that's right next door. I mean, what's in it for everybody to well, go along with the conspiracy when it's just not, not real physics? Well, I, you know, I don't have a problem, Dick, with them saying it's six millibars, which is about 1% of the Earth's atmosphere. That's it one one hundredth. That's, yeah. that's almost exactly the triple point of water. You know, so water, large a large water table is probably determining the atmospheric pressure on Mars. And so, um, you know, I don't have a problem with that. Some people do, but I, I just think that Mars has a, a thin atmosphere. It doesn't bother me. It used to be a much thicker atmosphere, obviously. And that's what the, it's Mars past, I guess, Mars past that is controversial to me, not Mars present. Hmm. But well, wouldn't but that just me, Dick, being contrary? Wouldn't it be very significant, for instance, for Musk and his plans for colonization if the atmosphere, instead of being one one hundredth, it's one tenth? I mean, one tenth surface pressure is the pressure in in uh, several. High mountain ranges, the Andes, 
the Rockies. I know. And and it makes colonization and construction. uh, Yes. It it would be extremely convenient, but there's enough atmosphere to give good atmospheric braking with a heat shield, and uh, and there's enough atmosphere that I believe that there's a small but significant biosphere still existing on Mars from uh, day, its days of past glory. Well, it would be That's my own. It, it would be night and day if it's one-tenth the surface pressure as opposed to one one-hundredth. And again, yeah, I, I guess I guess I'm not uh, um, I'm not pre- prepared to be part of that battle. I've uh, I just I just say okay, it's one percent of Earth's atmosphere. It turns out the you know the uh, fourth most abundant gas in the Martian atmosphere is molecular oxygen, and I've had Mars scientists tell me that this is completely anomalous. They expected it would be carbon monoxide instead. Carbon, you know, instead molecular oxygen, which is hard to produce by anything but photosynthesis, is the the fourth most abundant uh, gas in the Martian atmosphere, indicating there's a biosphere on Mars now. Well, did you did did, did, you no? Did you follow the announcements from Curiosity? about six months to a year ago, I I can't remember exactly when, but they have an instrument called SAM on Curiosity, which can measure atmospheric composition very accurately. Oh, oh yes, I followed that very carefully. And the instrument detected methane, which of course is one of those key molecules that's indicative of biology on Earth. Most free free methane is produced by cows doing you know what and bacteria and all that Absolutely. so okay the it's other the, gas uh, the other john we can't both talk at once okay the other gas Five. the other gas that was rising and falling seasonally because the really cool thing about the methane is it rose in the spring and summer and then decreased in the fall and winter on mars then next year it rose in the spring and summer and decrease, in other words, a seasonal fluctuation. And what was really yeah. weird is that the oxygen that the instrument on Curiosity measured rose and fell in the same cycle with the same Martian seasons. And the, yes. the press release that NASA put out said that the principal investigators were so puzzled they were throwing the question open to the public. Could the public tell them what might be going on, which I thought was nuts. I know. It's pathetic. What kind of a it's game so are these lame. folks? Are these serious people? Or is it all a three-card Monty on a street corner in you know downtown New York? The, the uh, uh, future generations will look on this period as a, a period of of just collective stupidity and denial. Denial is not just a river in Egypt, Dick. It's 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 when you have stuff that clearly indicates one thing right in front of you and you refuse to recognize it. And the implications of finding life on Mars for some reason still freak people out. Remember when the um, the people at Houston 
Houston uh, Manned Space Flight Center found evidence for the, uh, you know, bacterial activity in Mars past and the Mars meteorites. Right. And they weren't attacked. They weren't attacked by members of the government. They were attacked by academia who didn't want to be demoted, apparently. <laughs> well, all they had to do was Here's to... All these, he's a professor, know-it-all, says, I've struggled for years to be head of my biology department here at this university, and I'll be damned if anybody's going to demote me to being a speck of dust in the universe, What do you th- what, what do you that think, finding does. What do you think of this new paper, which is claiming, based on NASA's data... And those photographs are very provocative that there is active, not just microbial life, but fungi and mushrooms growing within view of the Curiosity cameras. I'll have to study it more carefully, but to me, there's not really very much, you know, even – Mushrooms grow best in in the woods where there's a lot of dead and decaying um, uh, vegetable matter for them to feed on. Yeah, there's a lot of organic molecules. And on Mars, they're just – the soil is pretty poor. But do we know that? See, all our data up until the Chinese landed – hang on, hang on, hang on. All our data up until the Chinese landed yesterday has come from one space agency, a single source. Remember NASA's motto, no single point failure? Our entire failure about life on Mars has begun. We've only had information coming through one space program, one source. I think it's going to be incredibly interesting to see where the Chinese politically fall. Are they going to be independent? I mean, everything we think we know, they would love to catch NASA and the U.S. government in a lie. Good God, they would have headlines 40 feet tall if they could. uh, Of course they would. Uh, But I'll also remind you that one of the early Mars, uh, one of the early lunar probes by the uh, PRC showed a picture of a bunch of craters taken from orbit around the moon. And it turned out, just by coincidence, it was exactly the same landscape with the same lighting as photographed by the Clementine mission. So they <laughs> they basically grabbed a Clementine. Their camera had failed. So they basically just grabbed a Clementine picture and presented it as, as a product of their moon probe. Now, they eventually got so they could land stuff on the moon by trying and trying and trying. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again. Um, well, wait, 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 wait. Their first attempted landing was successful, Chang 3 in Mari Imbrium. Their second landing, Chang um, 4 on the far side, successful. And the oh, images. Yeah, they, early, one of their early probes just orbiting the moon was not successful. It never sent back any pictures. And then it finally sent one. They released one picture. It turns out it was taken by the Clementine. Right, right. So, uh, so uh, you know. They, well, that was they, kind they, of was dumb. A, well, it, it was. And uh, See, that's, I even that's, recognized the picture. That seems to me <laughs> to be an example of the political commissars overruling oh, the technical people and being stupid to boot. 
not realizing yes, they yes. would get caught. Um, they, um, you know, they, this is a country that managed this population control um, uh, program so that it has a surplus of men, you know, meaning they aborted all their little girls. And so, so, so anyone who claims the PRC is run by a bunch of geniuses, I'm sorry, I got a bridge to sell you. So, well, but they will eventually, they will eventually land on Mars successfully if they keep trying. Okay, we got about 10 minutes at the top of the hour. Let's get into the area that you were intrigued with in terms of Mars. Um, I remember sure. decades ago, I picked up the phone and I called a guy named John Brandenburg. And I said, would you like, yes, to, you would you like to help us do something really bizarre out of SRI? We're looking for evidence of ancient, intelligent life on the planet Mars. And obviously that spurred you to a, a career of not only looking at Mars, but finding some really extraordinary data. Do you remember our first conversation, the reason that I wanted you to be a member of the team? Yes. I remember because uh, I understood directed energy weapons and their effects. And We talked and, about uh, the craters. Looking at the craters. And I asked you, I said, why do some of these craters look like they were – this is a Sidonia from the orbital Viking yeah. imagery, which is all we had in those days. I said, John, why do these craters look like they weren't like meteor impacts or even nuclear explosions, but they look weird yeah. like they were beam weapon craters? And you said – Sure. I said they – they do look like beam weapon uh, craters. And um, I had, uh, Dick, I'll just give you a little background. I had been at, um, at Sandia Labs for about two years. And it was much different than Lawrence Livermore National Lab, which I had gone to graduate school in, in at Teller Tech, where I worked on nuclear fusion. Uh, both the laser fusion and magnetic fusion. And I'd also learned uh, when you, by the way, if you're going to study laser fusion, it's a miniature hydrogen bomb. So you, you have to understand hydrogen bomb physics. Uh, but it was a very hard transition. It was a, the Sandia Labs had a much different culture than uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab. And here I was uh, trying to make a brighter, warmer future for humanity and solve the energy crisis. Then the funding all dried up, and I ended up working on Death Ray at uh, Lawrence at uh, Sandia Labs. I was working on charged particle beam weapons, and so that was a big. It was a big struggle for me. To, well, this was in the heyday of SDI, Strategic Defense Initiative, Ronald Reagan. Actually, yes. Yes, it was. And so what happened was I was fighting a little bit of depression when you gave me a call. And I, but I had just found out about Petro and Molinar's work on Mars. And I thought, well, also, we had just gone through a nuclear war scare at the lab called Abel Archer. Hmm. And we didn't know how serious it was, but we... It, you can read about Abel Archer on the net, 
we came as close to a nuclear war as we did during the Cuban Missile Crisis, but nobody knew it at the time. It was secret. Was this a bemused, that, was this a bemused detection of what we thought were missiles coming over the pole? Uh, no, this was the fact that the Russians were very rattled, and uh, we decided to stage a big war exercise. Oh, for, yes, 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 uh, yes, yes. I, I, I remember young. Yeah, right. So anyway, so you know, so we could see at the lab they were gearing up for um, a nuclear war, and we could feel it. it and the reaction of the uh, staff. It wasn't just me, it was just profound depression. And so when I saw the evidence for a dead civilization, oh, also the Martian winter, the nuclear winter, which was, you know, caused by a nuclear a dust storm on Mars, right. had come out. And this had also contributed to a uh, feeling of deep depression in the staff, the tech, you know, scientists like me. Uh, so then suddenly, I see the um, uh, the pictures uh, from Cydonia Menza of the pyramid and the face, and and it suddenly it, it gave me hope that we could get out of this Cold War thing. And you and I actually discussed that. We said, you know, gee, if we discovered a dead civilization on Mars, that would end the Cold War, because then we would have to concentrate on on uh, well, do you remember? Do you, do you remember the summit that Reagan held with Gorbachev at Reykjavik? Yes. And they actually talked about we would all put our separate ideologies to, to rest in, in 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 face of a common. They phrased it in those days as a threat, but it's really the unknown. Yes. Because if you if yes, you if you was. encounter the remains of an ancient civilization. It tells policy planners two things immediately. One is we're not the only guys in the neighborhood, right? And and number two, if you're being cautious, which, of course, these folks are paid to be, you can't assume they're friendlies. They could be non-friendlies, which means it could be a threat, which means you have to go through that level of analysis. Well, one of of the uh, great principles of SETI is called the principle of mediocrity, which says that the human race and the earth and its biology and everything are not an aberration on the cosmos. We are, we are not exotic. We are mediocre. We are average. And if that's true, then the warlike, highly aggressive character of the human race is to be also found elsewhere in the universe. So, Yes, you have to keep your powder dry, and um, you know the, the Klingons are out there someplace. <laughs> so um, it, it's just a um, all of this had occurred um, just before you called, and so I leaped at this because it gave me hope that instead of marching lockstep with a whole bunch of other mainstream scientists over a nuclear cliff. Hold it there. We're at the top uh, of the hour. My guest this morning is Dr. John Brandenburg, and he, like I, have held for decades now 
that the one thing that may pull the human race out of this spiral, this death spiral down to, as Arthur Clarke once called it, the great primeval sea of extinction in World War III, could be the discovery and verification of the existence of an extraterrestrial civilization. Now, when we were looking at Sidonia, we were thinking in terms of real ETs, real aliens, independent development, evolution, all of that. What happens if you find out in the data that your ET civilization is, in fact, your own from a long, 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 long time ago? What does that do to international relations? And are we going to see a test with the Chinese now independently on Mars, perhaps, with separate instruments, separate political philosophy, separate governments, separate engineers, scientists, separate everything? Are they going to occupy the same party line? Or are they going to tell us the real Mars? the Mars that we have figured out separately from NASA. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard Z. Hoagland. We shall return. Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Support the broadcaster to provide you with the most interesting conversation available. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. Saturday night here on the radio, the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is Dr. John Randenberg. And, you know, John, um, look, thinking back to those first, uh, you know, independent Mars investigation days when all was brand new and all was possible and all was amazing, the thing that struck me about the Viking data is that in that original Viking analysis of the atmosphere and the soil, there were certain anomalies said to me there were isotopes that were there that should not have been there. And given that I'm not a nuclear physicist, I was entranced 
that ultimately after decades of study, you had come to the conclusion based on that isotopic evidence that there in fact was at one time a, maybe more than one A, nuclear war on Mars. You want to kind of track through your thinking, how you started looking at this seriously? Yes. Okay. Now, you must understand that uh, almost all the weapons in the American arsenal, uh, a hydrogen bomb is kind of a watermelon-shaped case, casing, called a radiation case, and they set off an atomic bomb at one end of it, one focal point in that watermelon, and then it focuses its shock waves and radiation down at another focal point, and that's where they put a sphere of a hydrogen and lithium isotopes, which does the fusion reaction. So they, they set off the hydrogen Reaction. Oh, it's kind of like a foci, two foci of an ellipse, like a planetary ellipse. Exactly. Exact, it is exactly that. So what happens is you have to make this radiation case out of some very dense, atomically uh, weighty metal. And what they use often is uranium. And apparently also the government has released the fact that they also use thorium uh, in some nuclear weapons. And so what happens is, and you can read about this on Wikipedia, uh, the, the nuclear reaction goes fission to set off the hydrogen reaction, which is fusion. Fusion releases all of these high energy neutrons, which then burn up the casing, which is uranium and thorium, even though it's not enriched uranium, the neutrons are so powerful they split it, and that doubles the yield of the hydrogen bomb. Mm. So it goes fission, fusion, fission again. This creates an enormous amount of fallout. Sounds very dirty, yeah. Oh, it's very dirty. And it also means, though, that you can... Uh, make very compact, very powerful hydrogen bombs. And um, so that's what they do. Now, I understood that from working at Livermore. And in fact, it was, it was open, open literature that they did this. Uh, but then um, I was standing in line Trying to in those days you had to Xerox everything. If you saw a scientific article you liked, you couldn't just get a copy of it off the internet. You mm. had to you had to go to the library, get a copy, get a scientific journal, and then copy it with a Xerox machine. So we're standing in line at the Xerox machine at Sandia National Labs, and I'm studying the Martian atmosphere. And what's peculiar is they have this spike at xenon in abundance at xenon-129 that's not present in the Earth's atmosphere or in the solar wind or at Jupiter or every other large, um, you know, reservoir in the solar system has xenon isotope distributions that look pretty much like Earth, where 132, atomic weight 132 and 129 are almost equal. Those are the two abundant ones. Right. This guy, I'm standing there, 
in the line with this guy at um, Sandia Labs. And I mentioned, you know, I'm studying the isotopes on the Martian atmosphere that are very strange. And I mentioned the Xenon-129. And he was, a, you know, just a very genial, friendly fellow. And then he suddenly says, can I see that data? Hmm. He, he he looks troubled. And I, he I showed him the art. John, John, he looked what? He looked troubled. Ah, troubled. Okay. And then he and I found out that there was a group at Sandia Labs that specialized in atmospheric monitoring of uh, nuclear activity. So they could tell by the isotopes in the air, like over North Korea and places like that, what they were up to. So he looks at the article on Mars and the superabundance of xenon-129, and he says, someone nuked them. That's what that means. Wow. And he just, he looked very, very serious. And then he got this apologetic look and said, excuse me. (laughs) And he left the line of the Xerox machine because we were, he, he had, what I interpreted, he had said something classified in an unclassified area of the library so he went and and walked back into the lab where the there was a door that led to the classified area and so i didn't um you know i never figured out who he was or anything but that was his just immediate reaction and um well did he realize what what he was saying yes he did he said someone nuked them that's what that's that's what that uh, peculiar uh, distribution of isotopes means. And what uh, date was this? This was in the middle of our IMIT investigation. Oh, and it my. was such a horrifying... Um, so this was in the early 80s? Said, yes. Oh, it was 1984. Okay. And um, when we were... And I shared this with, uh, like, Lambert Dolphin, who was part of our IMIT investigation who he was somebody who'd been around the block well he was a senior he was a senior physicist at sri which is this yes he was this, this uh you know standard research institute think tank kind of like rand or brookings or whatever and he's the guy that let me bring in this independent mars investigation and set it up there at sri and he was a pretty broad-minded guy yeah, by the way, uh, you know that the remote viewing uh, project Stargate was just down the hall. Yes. From, uh, at SRI, from where, where our activities were. And, but anyway, so Lambert Dolphin was just aghast at this. And he said, I, he says, I can't talk about this. We'll have to give me a few days to absorb this. So we, we um that was what was hanging over my head during the latter part of that investigation i didn't talk about it a lot to anybody because i i didn't i didn't know enough to know why xenon 129 would would be so what i have found now by the way do you remember the half-life hang on do you remember the half-life of xenon 129 Oh, it's stable. It lasts forever. But it's a daughter product of what reaction and what's the half-life of that? Well, the, when when you split 
uh, uranium, like in a nuclear reactor, uh, uranium gets split at, by low energy neutrons and it produces a certain distribution of daughter products, including xenon. And xenon has like five different stable isotopes. I can't remember the exact number. It's got a large number. So you can do elaborate forensics on the uh, reaction from looking at the distribution of the xenon that comes out as a product. If you raise the energy of the neutrons so that it becomes very, they become very powerful, mm-hmm. not like in a, moderated, you know, in a nuclear reactor, the, ne- the neutrons are moderated by going through water, so they slow them down. So they're low energy neutrons. They're called what? Therm- they're called thermal. Neutrons, are they called thermal neutrons? Those are thermal neutrons. But in a hydrogen bomb, the neutrons are not thermal. They are very high energy. They haven't been thermalized, and they split uranium and thorium atoms easily, uh, even if they are not uranium-235, if they're just ordinary uranium-238, they'll split it. So um, so what happens is if you have a process called R process, R is in Romeo, mm-hmm. you can look this up on Wikipedia, R which process. Actually, which actually stands for rapid. Rapid. And what this does, this is a operation that occurs in only two places that we know of, hydrogen bombs and supernova. Mm. Now, I couldn't, I couldn't find any direct data from, um, you know, nuclear tests on Earth. I know they'd measured it by flying airplanes through the mushroom clouds after hydrogen bomb tests and verified this. But... As it turns out, now they can do simulations with uh, computer simulations of all the nuclear reactions that occur in a supernova. Mm -hmm. And that produces the big spike in xenon-129. So I found those articles. I have those graphs now. And I can tell you it is a conspiracy of silence within the planetary community that they know what causes that xenon-129 spike on Mars. It's our process. And now, now you just, know just, no just so, so people understand, there is in yeah. the astronomical literature, both the technical papers and the general popular discussion, that the formation of the solar system was triggered in an interstellar cloud by a nearby supernova, Compression waves, yeah. gravity, you get swirling gases, you get a star, you get planets, all of that. That would have been, according to the chronology, four and a half billion years ago. But that yeah. R process spewing through the shock waves, daughter products into the nebula would have salted everything the solar system formed from with those nuclei. But what we find right. here is something so weird because you don't see this anomalous xenon-129 on in Neptune's atmosphere. You don't see it at Pluto. Yeah. You don't see it at Jupiter or Saturn, Venus Jupiter. On, or Earth. You only see it at Mars 
which eliminates the supernova idea and leaves you with only one other possibility, an artificial R process, i.e. a thermonuclear exchange. Yes. Wow. Well, we're not sure. Uh, my own hypothesis, and it's and Dick, I will be freely admit it's a working hypothesis. I don't know what happened on Mars. I want to go up and find out what happened there. You know, but at the same time, it looks like it looks to me as though the civilization on Mars was primitive and humanoid, and um, somebody came <laughs> sorry, along sorry. and dropped two hydrogen bombs on them as big as the Empire State Building. And uh, it was basically Mars as Alderaan from Star Wars. Um, you know, why would anybody do that to Mars? Uh, well, as Governor Tarkin said, uh, Tatooine was too far too remote to be a good example for the rest of the planet. So it was an act of terror, I believe. But, you know, but I don't know. It could have been a nuclear war among Martians and only the massive monuments like like the Sphinx and the pyramids would survive a nuclear war. Even after 10,000 years, everything else has crumbled to dust. The Sphinx and the pyramids will still be there in Giza. Maybe that's what Mars that's what the ruins on Mars are. They're remnant, massive uh, uh, monuments. But I myself believe it was a primitive civilization that somebody nuked them. And um, or they or say, or or like during the Cold War, they nuked themselves. They, remember, they remember, themselves. remember the fir- worst fights are within families. I know they are, and and so it's just a uh, we need to go up there, find out what happened. Okay, it's with a, the with the available for humans, it's essential for human survival in a living cosmos that we find out just exactly what we're dealing with. And by the way, in keeping with the principle of mediocrity, mm-hmm. nothing I have proposed. In my hypothesis, which is, you know, published in uh, Death on Mars, has not been seen on Earth, including dropping of nuclear weapons on helpless uh, urban centers. Um, Life, intelligence, building of massive monuments, that's all occurred on Earth. And finally, dropping of nuclear weapons on helpless uh, civilian populations, that's also occurred on Earth. So nothing I have proposed is happening on Mars hasn't already been demonstrated on Earth. Don't you yeah, find I'm sorry it, to say it. John, don't you find it interesting that the Chinese, whose overall mission to Mars is called Questions of Heaven or Questioning Heaven, but their yes. lander, a rover rather, is called uh, Kayung, which is the fire god of Mars. And fire... Yes. As in thermonuclear. In other words, are the Chinese telling us they already know? Oh, they know. Because the world has to know. In other words, 
all of these technical people looking at those isotopes and going through the litany that we just talked about, they know there's only two possibilities, supernova or hydrogen bombs. And you can eliminate the supernova because every, every place in the system would have spikes if it was a supernova. You can only right. isolate that spike to one planet if a nuclear exchange occurred on that planet. And the planet is Mars, right. the god of war. And in the Chinese idiom, yes. the fire god. I mean, it, it kind of says to me, they know. And the question is, will they tell? Well. And, um, if, and if they won't, why won't they? In Chinese, in Chinese culture, uh, you tend to uh, not tell everybody what you know. It's just very simple. Uh, Western culture is uh, far more verbose uh, in um, uh, the farther east you go, the more uh, like the Russian proverb is, is that the uh, the Russian proverb goes, the tongue that wags too often will be cut out. <laughs> Got to love those Russians. Mm-hmm. Now, they learned that from the Mongols. And. Um, they have a long conspiratorial heritage, as does the PRC. So, no, they're not going to say what they know or what they have deduced. I made it a point uh, at the planetary conferences when I, when I uh, proposed this Mars um, interpretation that there were anomalous expo- nuclear explosions on Mars. When when Russians would come up to my paper, it was a poster paper, I would make a deliberate effort to share this knowledge with them. Basically, because I uh, they're part of the uh, um, space station, <coughs> you know, the space station uh, partnership. Right. We're partners in space with the Russians. And uh, I just wanted them to know that uh, I was sharing this knowledge. Um, And um, I also um, was able to find, you know, the the other, there's other evidences of this uh, hydrogen bomb uh, on Mars business uh, scenario. Uh, There's a distribution of thorium on the Martian surface. It isn't found in the Mars meteorites to any degree, but on the surface, very thin layer, there's a very thin layer of of thorium on on the Martian surface that wraps around the planet like a planetary shockwave. Okay, hang on. How how do we know this? Oh, we know that from the gamma ray spectrometer carried by the Odyssey spacecraft. Okay. And we also know that there's so the Odyssey spacecraft, potassium. the Odyssey spacecraft, which is basically in low Mars orbit, in a couple of hundred miles upstairs, through the atmosphere of yeah. Mars, has a gamma ray detector and individual nuclear uh, uh, chain reactions, breakdowns, fission, or whatever. Some of them produce radioactive decay. Some of them produce gamma rays of a specific energy and wavelengths. And those yeah. were picked up by Mars Odyssey, 
and interpreted right. as emissions from the decay of thorium itself or a daughter product of, of a thorium series? Thorium, thorium itself. Wow. Um, and so they also found uh, radioactive potassium. Now, potassium is interesting because it's found in earth rocks. And if you uh, if potassium gets exposed to a nuclear explosion, uh, it becomes radioactive, and the half-life is billions of years. Wow. Like uh, 2.3. So potassium has a long memory. It has a memory like an elephant <laughs> or a radioactive elephant. Events. Right. And so you can see the, the pattern of radioactive potassium on the surface of Mars. And we also know, since we have Mars meteorites, thorium and potassium are very much depleted in those rocks from Mars relative to Earth. But on the surface of Mars, in the thin layer, they're almost the same as Earth. So it means there's a thin layer of radioactive potassium and radioactive thorium that wraps away all the way around the planet. And uh, the United States government, well, let me put it this way. When I first became, I was able to confirm this. I reported it to the Pentagon because I was working for them. Mm-hmm. Was this when you were working no, on the Clementine mission? No, this was after that. And... Um, working on a different job involving more classified information. And I became aware there was a Mars desk at the um, Pentagon, basically. What? And whoa, 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 whoa. Stop, stop, <laughs> yeah. stop. In the American defense establishment in the Pentagon, where NASA is well, NASA supposedly a civilian, NASA supposedly a civilian space agency in charge of sending probes to Mars, there is a Mars desk in the U.S. Defense Department? Well, it's more in the D- Defense Intelligence Agency has apparently a Mars desk. And Holy so we knew cow. that one person, one person sat at, one person we knew reported to that desk. And uh, all I can say is Washington, D.C. is a small town in, in oh, these yes. sorts of circles. Oh, yes. So anyway, so we reported it to him, to Petro and I, and uh, they came, and he came and listened to a whole presentation where I showed him all the data I found, and he took uh, very careful notes. Was this a civilian? Was this a civilian or a uh, colonel, like in the Air Force? It was a civilian. Okay. And then he he said, I will report this. Thank you. And so uh, then six months later, through a different channel, they said, why don't you publish this stuff? So um, in the meantime, I thought maybe it was a natural nuclear reactor that had gone unstable and blown up. But no, the xenon, it produces a different xenon spectrum because the moderate, you have to have moderated neutrons. Like so the one, like the one in Africa that was a big news several, right. a couple of decades ago, yeah. 
It was, that only happened because there was water, pardon me, that only happened in Africa because there was wa- groundwater to moderate the neutrons. Right. So when you, when you do that, it produces uh, a different xenon spectrum. Doesn't produce the xenon-129 spike. It's what called S process, meaning slow process. Yep, yep, yep. So the fingerprints are really distinctive, and they can't be they mixed are. up. You can tell from the smoking gun what kind of gun it was, whether it was a snub nose 38 revolver or a nine millimeter Glock, for instance. So basically, they got back to me through channels and said, why don't you publish this? So the first thing I did was I I came up with a story of an unstable natural nuclear reactor. People liked that idea. Okay. And I liked it too. But then I found out one person commented when I was presenting in the paper, the xenon spectrum is wrong. And he said, that's not a nuclear reactor. So there's widespread knowledge of this in the uh, planetary community. A lot of these guys got their training in nuclear physics in the weapons programs. Hmm. So but what, what about, uh, I tell you what, we're, we're, we're at the I bottom of the hour. So let's, let's kind of keep it yeah. there. My guest this morning is Dr. John Brandenburg. And what he's laying out is really solid. I mean, solid scientific information, as solid as you can get. When you have a binary decision, and there's only two ways you can get something to happen, and you eliminate the one way, and the alternative is an artificial creation of nuclear weapons technology and an exchange, a war on another planet and your first landed mission, the Viking mission detects the isotopes, the daughter isotopes of this kind of thermonuclear exchange in the atmosphere. And then for 50 years, half a century, all of the civilian scientists who know, who talk to each other, who write, who communicate, who go to conferences, who referee each other's papers, nobody breaks silence and they sit on the most stunning set of fingerprints for artificiality elsewhere than on Earth in the solar system for over 50 years. Which again brings up the question, what are the Chinese going to do Now that, by their own claim, they have instruments on Mars to measure all of this. You're on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return. Side of midnight.com. 
tune in to listen to Richard C. Hogland and his fascinating guests. Support the broadcast and don't miss another groundbreaking conversation. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive member benefits. Listen to past episodes anytime on any device. Search the archives of over 180 episodes. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio at the cutting edge of science and thought. The other side of midnight.com. Welcome back, everyone. Saturday night, moving toward the witching hour here on the other side of midnight. My guest this morning is plasma physicist, Dr. John Brandenburg, who has been looking with, I mean, I, I can't overstress the exactitude of this kind of scientific information. Nuclear isotopic signatures are kind of the gold standard for a whole range of physical processes, both in the cosmos and astrophysics, and obviously here on Earth once we develop nuclear technology. To find such an atmospheric anomaly on Mars and to have it remain, in essence, a secret for over half a century John, I, I'm just boggled that no one has basically, since a lot of this now is declassified and they could independently put together the same you know, paper trail you did, that no one has blown the whistle because the implications are nothing less than we are not alone. Right? Yes. It is two independent lines of evidence that we are not alone in the universe. And furthermore, whoever's out there, at some point, you know, the picture. See, again, if if you're looking at this in terms of policy, in terms of threat analysis, in terms of you know who's out there, a it tells you there's somebody out there, and b they have nuclear weapons, and that should get all policy people of every government on Earth very, very uncomfortable. It, it has. I believe it already has. Uh, I have been informed that um, despite the fact that they were poo-pooing our research efforts of the Emmett investigation, which you organized, uh, despite the fact that people were poo-pooing our investigation, privately there was an intense classified effort to throw every intelligent asset uh, intelligence asset possible at Mars, analyzing the pictures uh, from the uh, Cydonia Mensa and Galactic's Chaos, etc., um, and also the isotopes. They were doing remote viewing. They were desperate to find out as much as possible about what happened, and uh, they they knew what the Xenon-129 super abundance on Mars meant. 
because of uh, classified uh, results of nuclear testing. And yet the secret has been maintained for over half a century. Oh, yes. yes. Oh, yes. Uh, I sent you uh, one picture. One of the most studied meteorites in history is called Allende. It fell near a village in Mexico called Allende. And it dates from the very early solar system. And if you separate out diamond dust from this meteorite from Allende and crush the little diamonds, it releases xenon xenon isotopes, and they match Mars almost exactly. And that's because they're from the original supernova that triggered the uh, formation of the solar system. Right presence at a level of like 1% of the material in this Allende meteorite shows this xenon uh, signature. And they've known that since 1985. So it's a conspiracy of silence. And uh, I've now found in the literature simulations showing the xenon 129 spike as a result of simulated uh, supernova explosions. So as a scientist, I've crossed the T's and dotted the I's on this investigation. I'm very pleased. Hmm. Okay. Um, let's, Let's assume that this data is exactly what we think it is. Is there any way to date when this proposed possible yes. Mars nuclear war and take us through the technique of how you do the discrimination of the, of the dating and the daughter products and all that. Cause again, I want to impugn to the audience, the idea that this is real solid, the most solid kind of physics that you can get the kind of smoking gun evidence that when you talk about artifacts, everybody can say, Oh, I don't see the geometry. But it's kind of hard to deny isotopic signatures because they're unique. Yes. They, uh, and um, because of the nuclear weapons program, they understand <clears throat> the kinds of isotopes that are produced in nuclear weapons detonations, not just xenon, but other things as well. There's a, there's, you may remember there was the InSight probe it was launched from Vandenberg Air Force Base. Oh, yeah. I'm very yes. familiar with this because that's where they launched the Clementine. The reason they launched the Clementine from um, Vandenberg Air Force Base is because technically many of the technologies on the Clementine were developed during the Star Wars yep. defense initiative. And they had to keep the uh, – they didn't want people – uh, being able to figure out what was on board. So the, the payload was essentially classified. So I believe that they sent that probe to Mars from Vandenberg because it had a classified payload on board. That classified payload probably sampled the soil to look for plutonium-244, which is produced in hydrogen bombs and nowhere else. Oh, my. Now, is that a stable isotope? Yes, it has a very long half-life, about um, 
80 million years at least. And so... But wait, 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 wait. Curiosity has this incredibly sophisticated several labs, including mass spectrometry, laser spectrometry, um, physical chemistry. Why wouldn't the Curiosity mission itself have detected these unique Um, isotopes? All I know is the... um, the InSight probe was launched from Vandenberg. That adds considerably to the cost of the probe. If you're going to launch a probe to Mars, you want to take advantage of the Earth's rotation right. to give you a maximum kick. Launching from Vandenberg, you lose all of that advantage. That means you have to use a more expensive rocket. So they added uh, $20, $30 million to the cost of the mission to launch it from Vandenberg. Uh, They gave the lame excuse that they were trying to um, uh, reduce the workload for the people at Cape Canaveral. But at Cape Canaveral, they couldn't keep a heavy guard on the spacecraft and its payload without attracting attention. At Vandenberg, everything's locked down because it handles classified military payloads. So routinely. the circumstantial Everything. evidence, John, says that if it hadn't been a top-secret payload on InSight, together with the seismometer and the mold digger, the you know the thermal profile, and then and the cameras, yeah. that they wouldn't have put it behind an onion layer of security that already is in place. So there'd be nobody raising eyebrows at security of Vandenberg because, of course, everything is inside right. layers of security, but that Absolutely. would not obtain at the Cape. It would stand out like the proverbial sore thumb. It would stick out like a sore thumb, yes. So they launched it for Vandenberg where security would not, and we don't know what the classified payload is. I, I'm just picking one isotope I know of that is produced by nuclear weapons and nowhere else. It's uranium, uh, it's plutonium-244. The only place it's produced, other than hydrogen bombs, is in supernovas. Okay. Have you looked at the open literature? All of that is hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on, hang on. Have you looked at the open literature from the Curiosity mission and the surface sampling to see if this isotope is present in public data from Curiosity? Oh, it would have immediately attracted attention if it was. Uh, the the plutonium-244 well, wait, 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 actually, wait, wait, wait. You say it would have attracted attention from whom? Since everybody in the club seems to know the xenon-129 is a nuclear signature from an artificial you know, thermonuclear source, i.e. H-bombs, if they found in the Curiosity data, unless you're a nuke expert and you see it in, in some you know, graph, you're not going to know what it is. The average reader is not going to know. The people in the yeah. club know, but they've already made the deal with the devil not to talk about it. So why would you have to go to the expense of a secret mission experiment on you know, piggybacking on an existing NASA mission when everybody already has agreed to keep the secret? It's the fact that we are not alone in the universe – and probably not even lonely. 60 Minutes is apparently going to have a thing on the UAPs tomorrow. Uh, let's just say the first reflex action of the people in the government 
is to keep a lid on this. It just is. We have two independent lines of evidence now that there was intelligent activity on Mars. The the forensics that suggest a nuclear that nuclear weapon massive nuclear weapons were employed, mm-hmm. and of course also the ruins at Cydonia Menza and other places on Mars. So, and of course the evidence that Mars passed was very Earth-like. So intelligence could have evolved there independently of Earth. Uh, so, but they the The analogy I was given is that the government is more worried about the UFO problem than it is about Mars. Mars is not by itself threatening, but the UFO thing is, and... Well, wait, wait, um, wait, 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 unless there's somebody still home. Well, there's always that possibility, too, or there's... Uh, well, do you remember back in the 1950s when Eisenhower was president and people like Dr. Singer were his science advisors and Shlovsky in Russia was talking about Phobos and Deimos' artificial satellites and the UFO flaps were occurring like the one over Washington? Yes, yes, yes. And remember where everybody said in the consensus inside the government they may be coming from? Mars. I know that thought was Mars because of... You know, Mars is the closest Earth-like planet, yeah. Earth-like, uh, uh, you know, with big quotes on it. Okay, let, uh, let, let us move away from the politics because we don't have a lot of time. I'm going to bring on the other members of the uh, Enterprise Mission Imaging Absolutely. Team at the top of the hour. Let's go back to the dating. How do you date when okay. the war or wars, plural, may have taken place? Well, we have rocks from Mars. Most of these rocks are young, meaning they come from the northern part of Mars where there's very few craters. You're talking about meteors, so right? Meteorites. Me, yeah. This is, so the, the, the rock on the northern hemisphere of Mars is younger than the rock on the southern part of Mars because it has very much fewer craters. So and it used to be in a part of an ocean bed. Okay. So that rock is, is young. We know it's young they can radiometrically date the minerals in that rock to about 180 million years ago. This is what a group called the Shergatites. Okay. They also show, though, that they were heavily irradiated with neutrons. They had so, many, so much neutron bombardment that they had to take ordinary lava rock on Earth and put it in a nuclear reactor to simulate how much radiation it had absorbed. So that's another, by the way, line, uh, line of evidence that some enormous radiological event happened on Mars. And we're talking R and process th- as opposed to S process. Yes, they were high energy neutrons. They weren't just moderated neutrons. So the the dating of the radiometric dating of the minerals in the rock is about 180 million years old. And they're the ones that are radiated heavily with neutrons. So it looks like whatever happened happened about 180 million years ago. 
so that's how we can kind of guess. The other, there's other circumstantial evidence um, indicating that um, um, that if you look at maps of unstable, you know, radio radioactive elements in the Mars surface. Um, the potassium and thorium show up very, very easily, but and show this kind of uh, looks like two hot spots on Mars where these two hydrogen bombs went off, possibly. But if you look at shorter-lived isotopes, you know that last only 80 million years, etc., like mm-hmm. iron and things, they don't show that same pattern at all. So, and by the way, the U.S. government shortly after I published one of my papers, released the fact that they put thorium in some of their hydrogen bombs. The example they gave was what's called the W-71 warhead. It's the one that they tested at Amchatka, five megatons. It was the largest underground nuclear test ever conducted in history by anybody. So this was a space-enhanced nuclear warhead full of thorium for some reason. I, you know, I don't know why they use thorium in that one, uh, but they released that. Uh, they declassified that. It's one of the documents I sent you. And so they confirmed that, yes, they use thorium and hydrogen bombs. Well, like the fission, you know, after effect, you know, fission, fusion, fission that you described earlier. Yes. If you if you put thorium in the casing, what does that do to enhance the weapon yield itself? Uh, well, my understanding is that it adds to the weapon yield, just like uranium, but it shifts the um, radio, the daughter products downward in um, atomic number. So I, you know, the the, the, if you study the Amchatka test, which is also called Kanakin, or the W-71, it was designed to be an anti-missile warhead as part of the Sentinel um, so would anti-missile. So would it emit a high yield of neutrons to basically fry? No, it, it, no, it emitted a high yield of X-rays. Oh, Okay. So it was a well. Then you've answered a, your own question. That's why you put the thorium in the casing because you want X-rays to irradiate the missile. So even if you don't get very close, the X-rays will take out the electronics from a near miss. Exactly, exactly. So there was. You're trying to adjust the fireball of this hydrogen bomb going off in space to emit more x-rays than neutrons, et cetera. But I, you know, I'm certainly not privy to that. That's, um, you know, that would be 40-year-old, uh, no, it's actually 50-year-old um, nuclear weapons design. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was just tested in 1971, I believe. And um, so I don't know why they did that. Um, I was at Livermore where they designed it, and I remember people talking about it, but I don't remember 
any particular reason. They, I never remember them even mentioning thorium. So, uh, but they, uh, they, they released this thing saying, yes, we put thorium in this nuclear weapon. And it wasn't just any old nuclear weapon. It was the highest yield underground test they ever set off. And it was optimized for space anti-missile work. So there you go. I don't know what else to say other than um, the government seemed to be, the government told me they wanted me to publish and then they were making the thorium data from Mars that much more important. It granted more credibility to the thorium data from Mars. You know, it almost seems, John, like you've got a competition between DOD and NASA or whoever NASA represents <laughs> that one group, oh. one, the, the DOD folks want this to be part of public discussion and the NASA folks do not. And that's crazy. It, if, if you read my novel, uh, uh, Morningstar Pass, The Collapse of the UFO Cover-Up, which is written by Victor Norgard, I, I wrote it under <laughs> a pen name. Uh, and, and you know, uh, the whole UFO cover-up is one, is one cluster. I won't finish that phrase. It's, it's faction-ridden. There's people who want to dis- are for disclosure. There are people who don't want disclosure till doomsday, <laughs> meaning you know never. <laughs> <laughs> they want disclosure to occur after doomsday, and uh, you know when the disclosure happens uh, in the novel, there's an attempted coup d'état by the secret government because the UFO cover-up is considered too big to fail. And um, so it's, uh, yeah, and you can watch a video on this on uh, YouTube, a video version. You don't have to read the whole novel, which is about a thousand pages. Mm-hmm. So, uh, hey, well, people complain. They said, why do you write such a long novel about the collapse of the UFO cover-up? And I said, well, the sky is big. So, so should the novel be. The novel should be big. It's about the sky. Right, right. So anyway, so I had fun with it. And, uh, of course, I had um, two beautiful women. Instead of uh, Woodward and Bernstein bringing down Watergate, uh, the Stargate is brought down by two two beautiful women, uh, Cassandra Chen, who's Asian-American, grew up rich in San Diego, and uh, this other woman, Pamela Monroe, who grew up poor in Cleveland and, and you know, started out as a weather girl on a t- local TV station. <laughs> one went to USC and one went to Cuyahoga Community College. <laughs> hmm. Anyway, I had fun with it. I had fun with it. Uh, but so, at the same time, and I asked, I sort of asked people's permission to, to write it. I said, you know, I heard a lot of interesting stories working at this one place. Okay, and I, you know, I was leaving to go down to Florida. I worked at Kennedy Space Center then, and I asked the people over lunch, I said, you mind if I write a science fiction novel about some of the stuff I heard around the coffee machine and in the halls here? And they said, just so long as it's science fi- labeled science fiction, John, we don't care. In fact, go read it. 
because we always liked your report. And then later, later I talked, and they said, yeah, we read your novel. We really liked it. (laughs) Well, that's kind of telling, isn't it? Well, you know, uh, I I don't understand any of it. And um, like I said, uh, in my novel, which is, of course, deliberately dramatic, uh, along with being, uh, you know, kind of a soap opera, when the UFO cover-up starts to unravel and there's congressional hearings and stuff, Mm-hmm. Uh, the secret government uh, puts tanks in the streets in Washington, D.C., and tries to uh, – in fact, the, the only thing guarding Capitol Hill is 200 park police. And so we, uh, the we, heroine – kind of found – well, we found that out for real a few months ago. Yeah, I, I know. I wrote this thing in 2003, and I put a video out oh showing my. this whole scenario in July – well, that's what happens when you write science fiction, Dick. You tap into this kind of prophetic vibe, you know? Okay, given that you're on and a prophetic so, streak here, let me ask you what's going to happen next month. Because yeah. along about the middle of June, uh, the, yeah. the National Defense Authorization Act, the NDAA, that Trump signed last year, has a provision, an appendix, apparently crafted by... Uh, Senator Rubio and a couple others, there's supposed to be a deadline for delivery from the Pentagon of a report to the Senate Intelligence Committee on or about the middle of June, about a month from tonight. And you know anything delivered is going to get leaked, particularly when it has to do with UFOs or UAPs or or whatever. So what do do you see this as the opening salvo in the disclosure endgame that a whole bunch of us think is about to take place. I believe, yes. I believe the, uh, just like in the novel, the UFO cover-up will collapse like all cover-ups. Um, it, but it, it, you know, uh, the, imagine in the sci- I'm speaking of a science fiction scenario that I put in the novel. Imagine you discover that the government has had an agreement with an alien group to allowing them to perform experiments on human adopt and uh, perform experiments on U.S. citizens. That would be the kiss of death. And politically, and Taylor, and, hold it there. We're at the. We're at the top of the hour. Let's let's save this for the other yeah, side. And we will bring on members of the Enterprise Mission Imaging Team to talk about some new discoveries we've made at Jezero Crater and some extremely interesting work that uh, uh, Tim Saunders has done, who was a nautical designer and engineer and who has uh, taken to heart the um, possibility of something extraordinarily built artificially over Jezero, which I should warn you, Dr. Brandenburg has not seen enough data yet. He he doesn't think that this could be real. We're going to find out in the next hour whether um, we can change his mind. Here on the other side of midnight, my name is Richard C. Hoagland. We shall return.
theothersideofmidnight.com. Talk radio with pictures on demand. Liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought. Join Club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule. Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. It is the witching hour here, literally the other side of midnight on this uh, Saturday night, Sunday morning now, here on your um, place to be for unusual cutting-edge science and speculations. I mean, this is really the smoking gun. John, this is such a smoking gun. Let, let us finish up what we were talking about, and then we'll bring on some other members of the team to react to what you have uh, late on us this evening because to me it's not so surprising given all the evidence that i've been looking at for the last you know 30 40 years vis-a-vis sedoni and all the other stuff all over mars what boggles my mind is nobody has broken cover no grad students no third level people that look at this data and you know read the literature like you and i do and who know what Xenon 129 in such abundance on Mars should mean, like your friend there in the line at the uh, Xerox machine at uh, uh, Sandia. In other words, how do they keep everybody in line? Fear. In what way? Prison? Well, they, death? They, uh, they, uh, they just say that that's uh, you know that association with hydrogen bombs is classified. And you um, talk about it publicly. Um, you can get your security clearance uh, lifted and uh, maybe go to prison. And in which case, you'll also lose your job and your whole career will be washed up. So that's uh, you know. <laughs> This government is good at keeping secrets. And um, so it's just a, uh, it's just something they can do. And they, uh, I mean, if somebody had tapped me on the shoulder at Sandia Labs and said, John, we don't want you investigating Mars, I probably would have done what they told me to do simply because I was a, a you know, young guy just out of grad school with my first, doing my first professional job and had just bought a house and had a wife and a beautiful daughter. And there I was in Albuquerque living the good life after years of being penniless in graduate <laughs> school. And um, so it was, uh, no, they, you know, all they had to do was just tell me to uh, stop. And I would have. 
um, I wouldn't have been happy. But um, when uh, when I discovered there was a UFO cover-up in Washington D.C., I was uh, just devastated, and uh, people had to talk to me and say, John. If you're going to work here, you can't question Defense Department policy. But by the same token, you know, it was your Defense Department colleagues that encouraged you to publish. Well, that came later. Well, they wanted me to publish about Mars. Right. And they didn't have any objection to me writing a science fiction novel <laughs> about uh, um about the UFO cover-up, mm. um, so it's it's funny. You know, I don't understand it. Um, it's all been kind of a wild adventure. But the um, my understanding is the government wants the Mars stuff to come out. So okay, it's a, it's come out. And okay, um, I'll tell you what. On on that I note, might, let let, let, let let me let me bring on other members of our team. We've got and uh, I don't know. Who's with us? Because I can't quite see a certain screen. We've got Andrew Curry, who was our resident artist on this project. We've got uh, Tim Saunders, mm-hmm. as I said, a nautical engineer, and Ron Gerbron, who was our generalist and polymath toward uh, archaeology. Um, in no particular order, who is with us? Good evening. I'm here. Okay, I heard. I'm here. All right. Uh, yes, John. I heard. I heard Tim Saunders, and I heard Andrew. Is Ron with us yet? Yes, not. Okay. So, um, who wants to go first, Tim? Since you're the engineering design guy, what do you think of what we've talk, been talking about? Well, it's fascinating. You know, it, it, we've we've surmised and guessed and speculated so many on so many different levels. And now to have this isotope uh, put on the table and confirmed, it, it's very revealing. And also some form of date as well. Mm. Yes. Do you have any questions for, for, for John? Here currently message. Thank you. <laughs> I think Ron is joining us. Uh, at some point, yes. Currently, I, I don't have any questions. I think you guys have been... You know, very clear, very explicit what you've been talking about. I, um, well, you'll understand that, you know, we have two independent lines of evidence now indicating intelligent activity on Mars in the past. And and uh, I have told people in the government that disclosing a dead civilization on Mars is a a soft landing for humanity because it's very non-threatening. I mean, they're dead. and uh, Unless they're not. But, uh, John, well, unless they're not. Maybe, unless the, they're maybe, maybe, maybe the third rail in all of this is we've been presuming, looking at these photographs for, you know, I've been looking at them for 40 years, that everything down yeah. there is dead. But we're not seeing yeah. everything because we don't have reconnaissance level. I mean, MRO... <laughs> can easily be censored. What if they're they're not all gone? What if there is a base? What if there is a remnant civilization and they, you know, they're heirs to a planetary nuclear war? Wouldn't that make our defense folks really, really nervous? 
Well, it could. Uh, oh, by the way, I, I hope you guys noticed that uh, Werner von Braun wrote a novel called The Mars Project. Yes. Uh, going to Mars, and he put a living civilization on Mars that was underground. And the head of the Mars colony was called the Elon. Yes, we've discussed many, 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 many times. Okay, um, Andrew. By the way, Dick, this is why I write science fiction now, because I want to tap into that vibe. Hmm. See, I want to write science fact. To hell with fiction. I want to blow the doors open on the facts, because that's the only thing that's going to change the current course of human civilization. Andrew, you've been listening, I presume? Yes. And you have Hi, thoughts or questions? Yes, I do. I do have a question. Dr. Brandenburg, um, thank you for coming yes, on the yes. show. Yeah, you've been great, man. Thank you. Great, great pleasure, Andrew. Yeah. Now, listen, um, I, th- I think I read today, I've been um, shuffling through the Meet the Martians page on the NASA Mars 2020, basically the Perseverance team. And I believe I read today something about there's 500 people involved in the operation of Perseverance. And I, I kind of want to circle back to what Richard said is, how do you keep a lid on that? I mean, these are these are extraordinary people. They're everything from you know real vets you can see in their faces. I've been looking at their personality profiles, and they answer a whole bunch of questions, which we'll probably come back to at some point because I have some little comments to make about that. A lot of these people have been inspired by science fiction, as you just said, um, and yeah. some of them are very um, cagey and saying nothing. Actually, Dr. Brandenburg, what's very very interesting is most of the women are super practical. They don't give away anything. The guys are way more yeah. like, yeah, I love Star Trek, Star Wars, and this and that. But the women are all, yes, my professor told me what to do. It was, it's very, very interesting. I mean, that's <laughs> one <laughs> question. <laughs> Why are the women so stiff and the men are way more, more, more of the men are way more like, you know. Because, Andrew, the, the reason is because women at that professional level I mean, here's Mimi uh, Ong, you know, who's in charge of the whole uh, Mars helicopter. And she's obviously a very enthusiastic person and uh, did a wonderful job, obviously, based on the flight of this Mars helicopter, you know, putting us into a new age, basically, a flight on the planet Mars. But it all comes with a price. You have to basically sign an unwritten agreement. How can you sign an unwritten agreement? Oh, it's easy. We all do it. You sign an unwritten agreement to follow certain unwritten rules, and one of them is you don't cause any controversy for the management at Jet Propulsion Lab. And uh, in fact, my joke is, is they, they, you know, how they hire the the uh, drivers for the Perseverance and the other rovers. They must be five-year veterans of driving in Los Angeles. Because that that means if they drive, they pass a car that's on fire with a person in a gorilla suit waving for them to stop, they will simply not make eye contact and keep driving. Hmm. If they see, uh, if they see something strange on Mars, they ruin a, um, artifact or anything lying by the uh, the path of the rover, they just keep going. They don't stop to investigate. Uh, they don't, uh, they, 
the unwritten rule is is that uh, uh, everything that is found on Mars is sensitive, and it's an upper management problem. I'm sorry, and that's the way it is in a lot of organizations. So what do you think is going to trigger the collapse of the cover-up? Oh, um, well, in in my in my novel, it's somebody decides to leak stuff because the uh, secret government is negotiating with the aliens, and they've negotiated a secret treaty extension, and the treaty was never been ratified by the Senate. It was negotiated by ambassadors the U.S. Senate has not appointed. And um, and is done without the advice and consent of the Senate, and that's the most amazing breach of constitutional law imaginable. Mm-hmm. But they're getting away with it because absolute secrecy creates absolute power in my novel. So what makes, so, they, so so you have your protagonist decide to basically break cover? What what Andrew just pointed out? Right. There are five hundred plus millennials, give or take. We now have a demonstration in the U.S. House of Representatives of some 200, you know, maybe a little less um, uh, Republicans. There are two individuals, uh, Lynn uh, Cheney and uh, Adam Kinzinger, who are going against everybody else, who are breaking cover. Yep. Yep. If, if, If you look at statistics... If you've got 500 people incredibly conscious, motivated, creative, artistic, want the best for humanity, and they know the secret, why don't you have one or two out of 500 calling a press conference with data and saying, this is what's really going on? How does JPL enforce rigidly, vigorously, for decades, this code of silence that makes the blue line look like a piece of Swiss cheese. Well, anyone who gets a job at JPL, and you must admit, they just do amazing technical things. Dick, we would not even have been able to have our investigation if they hadn't done such a wonderful job with the Vikings and even the Mariner 9. Yep. So anybody who works there feels like they are part of the elite team, and they don't want to endanger that with any uh, any misbehavior. They follow the unwritten rules. Have you ever talked to these people off off the books, behind the scenes, as to what's really going yeah. on versus the public perception? Yeah, I haven't talked extensively with them, but I did talk to one very prominent Mars scientist, and he said, John, you realize there is a Mars cover-up going on? And I said, um, yes, I do know that. He says, well, good. He said, that's all I can say. So even he, is a, and I'm talking a very prominent, prominent person, confided there was a Mars cover-up going on, but he couldn't say anything more than that. Okay. I mean, I'd already, we, we, Dick, you and I both know <laughs> what they're covering. 
I'm still fascinated by but how you keep such rigid control. Or maybe it might not even be dead. I don't even know that. See, in, in terms of research at this level, you, you have two conflicting things. You want incredible creativity, which means self-motivation, which means the ability to be members of a team, but to think independently, to speak up in meetings when you things, see things that are wrong. It's like herding cats, only it's, you know, big cats, like in a circus, lions, yep. tigers, and whatever. Yep. How do you enforce, given the greatest story in the history of humanity, how do you enforce such rigid so that not one person out of 500 breaks cover for decades? Oh, you know, you just, um, you just do it and it's worked. It's worked. Well, it's worked up until now because NASA, hang on. It's worked up and down because NASA was the only game in town. But there's other games now. There's Bezos. There's a guy named Musk. Do you think if someone at JPL basically broke cover and said, this is what's really waiting on Mars and why we've got to get there as fast as possible, and JPL fired them, don't you think Musk would snap them up the next morning? Oh, I know. I am certain that Musk, Elon Musk, has been taken aside already and they explained to him, uh, if you want to work with us, meaning NASA and the U.S. government, um, you got to follow these rules. No, they're not written down. They are, but they are rules nonetheless. And uh, you don't go to Mars, and you don't, if you do go to Mars, well, you don't go to Mars unless we say you can go to Mars. And if you do go to Mars, you land where we tell you to land, and you take pictures of what we tell you you can take pictures of, and that's it. That's Dr. the rules. Go ahead, Andrew. Richard, can I? Yeah, sure. Dr. Brandenburg, we actually have proof of that, what you just said. And Richard, oh, do you want to okay. tell about um, the Rogan interview? No, you can do it. Okay, so... Uh, Joe Rogan, you know, he has that Spotify podcast. He's got like millions of um, viewers and he interviews cool people, including Elon Musk. Da, 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 da. And recently he had an interview. You probably know about it. And at one point, uh, Elon, or I'm sorry, Joe Rogan says, hey, what do you think about that guy? Uh, Richard Hoagland used to be on Coast to Coast. I used to listen to him, you know, way back and blah, 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 blah. And, you know, he flashes up Richard's book, Monuments of Mars, that there's a screen in the back, right? The camera's sort of, they got, I think, three cameras going on. And up comes Richard's book, and they, and, you know, and Rogan, this, you can see him sessing him out, right? Like looking at him and watching him because the camera goes on sure, Rogan. Sure. And then you could see, um, uh, you know, what do you think about that crazy stuff about, you know, face on Mars? And suddenly Elon's face gets really like rigid and it's like, ah, yeah. And you know, then and it's like, Oh, viruses contract to points. <laughs> yeah. And then a few, well, here's the thing. A few minutes later, they start talking about leaving the solar system, going to another star system. And sure. both, both of them wax enthusiastic about finding a one-off 
Western town extinct civilization on a planet. And suddenly Elon, his eyes light up and he's excited. And he's going, oh, yeah, that could happen for sure if we get the propulsion to get to another star. And they just went crazy. In our solar system, it was like a taboo. No, 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 no. So oh, too close, too close. Yeah. But uh, something, you know, to... but John, something has to give, because as you said at the top of the show, no cover-ups are ever forever. No, they aren't. Okay. Well, uh, look, we we have some very important information to go through tonight. Tim, you're about to be on deck. Um, why don't you give John, and I hope, John, that you're sitting down because you're going to see some data that's going to blow your socks off, so you're going to have to replace your sock drawer. <laughs> Um, okay, Tim, okay. T- take it away and kind of give John the, you know, five minute tour of the background. If it takes you to the bottom of the hour, and then we'll spend the rest of the half hour talking about what you've been working on over the last week in terms of this extraordinary architecture at Jezero. Well, Richard, it all begins with obviously the cover-up and we just to go back very quickly if, if you're able to go to the my fast links and go to item number one uh it's basically a, a color balance study um john you're in front in of the, your computer right okay so follow the bouncing ball click on timothy's number under the under the uh, banner at the top of your guest page that will take you to his items okay very good, okay. very good. You're there, and you, you can see the, the color balance setup, which is on Perseverance. It's actually one which uh, Andrew brought my attention to uh, a few weeks ago, and we had a, numerous discussions. But in this image, it simply shows the same, the same image which is released by NASA. On the left, you see the original image. In the middle, you see the same image which has been auto-corrected in I use Photoshop and on the right side I have corrected it using the white gray and black uh, eyedropper system and to me the one which I believe is closest to reality is the right image and in there you can see that the lighting the contrast the saturation is completely different to how the sort of fudgy smudged <laughs> you know, vegetable soup colored image that NASA released it's sharp, it's clear, you can understand it. And also, it obviously points to a very different color sky. So, you know, the myth that the sky on Mars is red is busted, in my opinion. Oh, so yeah. that, that's, that's the first thing, which I'm sure you're very well, well aware of. Uh-huh. So, so I just wanted to show that. The, moving on, because as I say, we're going to set this up before the break. So what I've been doing is, is working on a number of um, studies around Jezero Crater, and I'm calling it a blue sky project. Yeah, it has multi-levels. <laughs> but basically because I do not want to be restricted, I do not want my imagination to be restricted, but what we're trying to do is reverse engineer what could have been there or what could still be potentially there in terms of a structure because what we're seeing is more than natural lines, more than natural geometry, and certainly more than natural uh, artifacts, which all add up to pointing to maybe this is more than a crater. Obviously, 
some people are talking about it's uh, it's previously been filled with water. We can see the delta, and we can see the sort of the estuaries. We can see the yeah, the waterways and so on. So I thought it'd be interesting mm-hmm. if you go into my second uh, set of images. We can see Jazeera created in black and white. I don't want to be distracted by color at this stage. And what I've done on my computer system, three different applications, is to set up the photographs the same scale and then I can perform different tasks knowing what the scale is at every every point. If I import it to a different system, then I know the scale is correct. And I, I've, I've you know adjusted, corrected the images accordingly. So what we see is the north, south, east, west annotation. We see the scale is a 10 kilometer uh, scale. Because, you know, 10 kilometers is so many miles, but I choose to work in metric. The second image in that area is an image which I downloaded is showing sort of suggested minerals. Now it's quite interesting is the green areas are um, what they're calling sort of uh, carbonates, which they say are especially good at preserving fossilized life on, on Earth. So presumably maybe they could do the same thing on Mars. And also we should be mindful that there's a little image on in Richard's section as well, showing there could well be fungi or, or puffs appearing on Mars, whether that's true or not. Maybe it's true. But also they, they, they show in later in that same document that these potential life forms could be what gives the green tinge mm. uh, to areas. So again, that could be a different... There's a lot of green in Jezero. Exactly. exactly. Oh yeah, well, that wouldn't surprise me. So the red areas in this this particular slide uh they represent olivine sand uh which i was looking up uh what that actually means and it's actually used in sort of uh glass production in foundries it's used in metal cleaning and that type of thing blasting yeah olivine olivine actually tends to be kind of greenish itself you know that's why they call it olivine so it's a in fact it's it's called peridot it's actually a semi-precious gem in some people's uh, collections um, and it's a very important mineral to geologists I remember one of the women scientists on the Clementine mission was obsessed with finding olivine on on the moon and she finally found it was extremely pleased and uh, well it indicates deep volcanic eruptions from down in the mantle yes it does apparently there is a uh a green beach uh, somewhere near to Hawaii or on Hawaii Ooh. Island itself, which is... Oh, where is it? that would be fabulous. That, that must be spectacular, yeah. Yeah, apparently it's the only olivine beach, and uh, that is a certain number of degrees, isn't it, Richard? At 19.5. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> but, um, so that's the next slide in the SAT series, by the way, is a topographical map something i downloaded because for me one of the first things i want to do when i analyze a photograph is to look at the scale and then if i can work out where the heights are so it's very nice that my computer system i can then make multi-layers and i can put all this information together and i can see what different people are considering to be a mound or a valley or a ditch or whatever it is and you know it just helps form a picture before i start developing a, a 3d model what I've noticed is that on 
the internet, there are renderings showing Jazeera Crater, which obviously uses a 3D scan of that area of the terrain, but it's not available anywhere. For example, uh, I do have a 3D scan of Gale Crater, um, which has been yeah, put up into public domain, but all the information yes. about Jazeera Crater is still, still not available to the public. I'm mindful that the, the, the break's coming up, Richard, and I think that after the break, it'd be wonderful if you could set the... Okay, we will do. Okay. My guests this morning, Dr. John Brandenburg, Tim Saunders, Andrew Curry, we're waiting on where Ron Gerbron is. He's lost somewhere in the ether. But those who are here will regale you with something really amazing right after the break. You are on the other side of midnight. My name is Richard C. Hoagland. Don't touch that dial because you're going to miss something important, really important, in the next half hour. Stay tuned. side of midnight.com talk radio with pictures on demand liberate your hyperdimensional time scale and non-linearly access over 400 hours of conversation at the cutting edge of science and thought join club 19.5 to get access to exclusive content that fits your interests and time schedule Filter episodes by guest or subject. Membership costs $9.95 a month, 33 cents a day. Talk radio with pictures on demand. The other side of midnight.com. And welcome back, everyone. One half hour to go on this Saturday night, Sunday morning edition of The Other Side of Midnight, where we've established so far that, in fact, there appears to have been a major nuclear war on the planet Mars at some time in the past. And John's original dating, based on some isotopic uh, daughter decay uh, chains, is in the order of 180 million years. After such a war, what could have happened? I mean, in the 1950s, you know, uh, there were scenarios that if you had a nuclear war between the Soviets and the United States that basically would eradicate an awful lot of life, there would still be life left. And after 100, 200, 300 years, the isotopes, the short-lived isotopes would die down and there would be survivors, there'd be mutations and whatever, and life would go on. Not civilization, that would take quite a while to recover and build back. I saw estimates on the order of like um, thousands of years. But thousands of years in a planetary history of billions, I mean, what's that? So we will not know until we get to Mars and we find, uh, keep saying this, the libraries. 
So let me talk right now about what is on Mars tonight that we can verify because NASA very obligingly keeps taking pictures of the things that we would like to know more about. So what you want to do is you want to go back to the other side of midnight, click on the banner for tonight, for Saturday, with John's name, Dr. John Brandenburg. That will take you to his guest page. Click on my name under the banner on that page, Richard, and that will take you to um, the, uh, let's see, um, oh, here we are, just slow switching. We have a lot of traffic. What you want to do is you want to scroll down to item number six, because several weeks ago, John, NASA began taking with the Perseverance cameras. They've now used at least four of the 19 plus cameras they have on board to take images of the sky, all sky images, image after image after image. They've now taken hundreds of images of the sky over Yezero, some of them with the mass cam, which is very narrow field of view, and some of them with the nav cam, which is a much wider field of view, some of them with the so-called sky cam, which is a, a kind of a fisheye lens looking up from the deck of the rover to monitor meteorological uh, activity, they say. They've taken all sky images with the Watson camera, which frankly I think is the best camera on the spacecraft. It's on the arm. It's designed to take close-up photographs of, you know, rocks right in front of the uh, rover of the arm. But you can use it to take landscape images. You can use it to take all sky images. They've done all of this. This mission, of all the missions that have been sent to Mars, has, after we started talking about this putative dome over Yezero, has this incredible fascination and obsession with taking repeated sequences of photographs of the entire sky over Yezero. And these have been put together by independent citizen scientists who then publish them on these independent chat rooms and boards and, and discussions on Perseverance and NASA data in general. Uh, item number six is one of these taken just at sunset, which uh, was posted by a guy named James Sorensen, who was a citizen scientist living in Eugene, Oregon. He posted to a, a, a um, site called unmannedspacecraft.com, UMSF, which have monitored missions going back, good grief, for decades. And a whole bunch of people there are not only citizens, but they're also leakers from inside JPL under assumed names. And they will corroborate or they will kind of give broad hints about certain mission plans and certain proclivities of the investigations, but not under their own name, et cetera, et cetera. Anyway, item number six is an all sky view put together with an Afghan mosaic, which we then process to its ultimate conclusion, showing at sunset on Sol 73, which just a few days ago, a stunning all sky view of extraordinary geometry all over the skies as seen by Percy looking up from Yezero Crater. Item number seven is a comparison of the same image with a similar fisheye lens of a typical late afternoon sunset image taken on Earth. And you can see a few wispy clouds. There is nothing in an Earth sky that resembles in any way, shape, or form the striking geometry seen in the Jezero image. 
item number eight is really amazing because Tim, I didn't compare my images with your images until just like I mean, a half hour ago. And you have noted the same bizarre geometry in the center of this image of Yezero that I found reflected just the other evening in a network television shot of the blue room carpet in the White House. And I've tracked back that the origin of this carpet is a set of, of 17th century rug makers that came by way of Turkey to France and set up shop to make stunning carpets that tell stories. And if you don't think there's geometry, look at the geometry over Yezero and look at the geometry on the floor of the Blue Room and ask yourself this question. What does the White House know and when did it know it? Number nine. This is now another picture taken by uh, uh, the uh, navcams on Percy, put together by a citizen scientist in Britain, uh, I'm sorry, in France, named uh, Damia Buick. And it's with the sun at 19.5 degrees above the Yezero crater horizon. Again, there's stunning geometry, but it's somewhat different than the geometry taken at the lower sun angle at sunset that we projected earlier. Finally, number 10, they've taken another mosaic, again with the nav cams, with the sun at high noon, as high overhead as you can get from Yezero, which is at 1844 north in the northern hemisphere of Mars. And the geometry is there, but it's changed again, indicating that, A, we're dealing with geometry and artificiality. That's a foregone conclusion. But with the lighting changes, when the sun angle changes, the geometry overhead changes because you're looking at layers and layers and layers. And each change of angle highlights and illuminates another layer of this ancient eroded dome that's literally 30 miles wide, the width of Yezero, and about seven miles tall in the center. And I don't have time to go into how we know all that. Item number 11, I put all this together, and you can see each of the three sun angles there side by side. You can compare them. You can take them into your own imaging programs. You can play around with them. What I'd like to do is to get the whole sequence from sunset to high noon and put them together as a GIF animation. And if we meld from one to the other, to the other, to the other, you will see the most amazing geometry both the changing aspects and the stable, reliable background aspects that indicate the structure of the dome itself. And on that note, I will segue back to Tim. Well, thank you. Thanks for setting the table very well there. It's uh, set for a feast. <laughs> so to jump back to my fast links, um, I'm just doing the same thing here. It is a little bit slow. There's a lot of people looking, I guess. Then I'm going to just point out the scale aspect of what we're looking at. Wow, it is slow. Lots of people. The scale aspect of what we're looking at. Uh, if you look at the diameter of this crater, we're talking around 30, 33 miles, something along those lines. I had a discussion yesterday evening with Kintia and Anetta, 
uh, about setting the scale in the, in the images you're about to see. And I was saying that, you know, it's when you place perseverance into the dome environment in 3D, it, it's lost. Even if I select it um, through the, the menu, uh, it, it's impossible to see it. Normally, you know, object in a 3D environment, if you select it, it, it sort of glows orange or pink or red or blue or something. Mm -hmm. And then you can zoom in on it. But it's just gone. It's just so small relatively to the size of the, 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 the crater, the, the potential dome. So we're surmising what, what should we put in there? Should we put a 747? And then that would give people an idea of scale. Well, that wouldn't work because that would also be a dot. A dot. And what about um, the Titanic or an aircraft carrier, the Nimitz or something? That would also be a dot. So in the end, we looked at you know, what could you put in there? And we decided that probably the best thing to put in inside to give people an idea of scale is a 3D model of Manhattan Island and then put three of them back to back. And that would give you an idea of the scale of this crater so it's absolutely huge so moving on to my item number three this is taken from the sky cam on Sol 82 now I'm, I'm seeing as Will says I see what I see you see what you see now I wanted to try and reproduce the images that you've been very kindly sharing with me so in my option um, link number three the this is basically just an, an original image from the Skycam from Sol 82. But if we go to the next one, which is the same image, again, it's all set up on my computer system, so everything's the same scale. I can correlate the Skycam images with the crater images, with the topographical maps, and so on. What I'm seeing is when I, I play with the, the filters, I'm not seeing the same, same geometry as you, Richard. I'm seeing something very different. And you can see in the second well, image. Well, wait, 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 wait. The, 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 all sky images we've been showing are from another camera on the rotor called the NavCam, which is color, very high resolution. The black yes. and white mm. sky cam, which is looking up through a fisheye lens, is a repurposed curiosity black and white um, hazard cam, which has relatively low resolution, low grayscaling, doesn't show anywhere near the detail that the color cameras that we showed earlier are, are demonstrating. Okay. Well, I'm just taking you through my journey because I, I don't like to take things on face value. I like to keep one foot on the ground and I'm very happy to be as imaginative as, as you know, limitless imagination. But on the other hand, I do want to keep one foot on the ground. So I want to first reproduce what you guys are doing in order to try and understand how and why. So yes, it's a different camera, but still I'm seeing geometry. If you see in my image number three, this is the second image in my section, in my, in my third link, excuse me, put it that way. So there's like a triangular geometry, like a patchwork, which is emerging. So I see, I'm seeing something there, for sure. Um, going to, what I'd like to do now is to jump actually to item number five, seeing as you've, you've brought up that conversation or point. So in item number five, TS Jazeera Creator Sky Study number two, I'm taking the original photograph, which is uh, by, excuse me, I'm forgetting the actual name, but I'm giving the initial, the credit, the initial TA. Yeah, it's Thomas Appierre. He's another French citizen scientist. Yes. So thank you for that. A-P-P-E-R-E. So, yes. So the first image is showing just the... Uh, the image put into my CAD system to the same scale. 
But the second one I'd like to demonstrate here, this is where we're seeing the same for shapes as you're pointing out in the, in the White House carpet. Isn't that amazing? So, so it is amazing, but I, I do have a theory because if you see that there is a sort of a blue rectangle, like a goalpost almost, it's sort of upside down, rotated, anti-clockwise a little. Um, what I'm wondering is, if you look deeper into the each quadrant of the image, you can see like the ellipse, the ellipse we're mm-hmm. talking about in the center. Now I've highlighted the ellipse in like a sort of a gray green color. And we were surmising what could those be? Could they be potentially columns or pillars or could they be supports? Could they be structure? Now they are very geometrically positioned in the photograph. That's not geometrically positioned relative to the sun or to the horizon, but to the photograph. And again, this is all set up the geometry from the other photographs as well. So I know the scale is correct and so on and so on. But what I'm wondering is that if this is made up from multiple photographs from a different camera, then what I'm wondering is, is this more dense, darker area of the sky where these ellipses are, is that created by an increase in density of the pixels? So if you take, for example, the blue rectangle, you can see if you turn your head kind of anti-clockwise a little, then you can see there's like a two sides of a, a rectangle. Then there's like a white and blue dotted line, which forms the other half of the goalpost. And then you can see I've put two arrows. And I'm wondering if those top left and bottom right corners are folded into the center, then what that would do is it would emphasize the highlight from the sun area. And it will also increase the density of pixels in the middle area where we're seeing this apparent ellipse. And I, I do put with one foot on the ground still say, I wonder if this is an optical illusion created by the way the photographs have been pasted together. I don't know what you think about that, Richard. Mm, I'm not well because we have different cameras which are seeing the same geometry. Remember the mass cam, which is close-ups of detail of this dome from inside and we see geometry that changes with sun angle which if it is real and it's there you'd expect different levels different floors different decks to be highlighted with different sun angle but you can also see the other geometries kind of vaguely shining through so you're seeing you know composites of different layering or different decks or floors when you're looking up and because the the nav cams are little are like rectangles you would you when you when you take a fixed rectangle of the sky the camera rotates and pans geometrically in its own in its own persona and then you have to rotate like a like a jigsaw puzzle those images to create or to 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 illuminate the geometry that's geographic that's referenced to the landscape. What I'm impressed with is that the geography of the landscape dominates these mosaics that are put together at different rotations, different angles. None, none of these, these, these uh, mosaics are the same, yet they give us the same gestalt. They give us the same geometry, even though each one is a unique product of the geometry of how it was taken. 
I agree. There is definitely something there. But my, my point is that we have to push the filters quite hard to see it. And I, I'm just curious to know, you know, how, how that information would be there so clearly when you push it, but it's not there when you, you know, when you look at the original photographs. But, well, because CCDs have an incredible linearity in what we're seeing. If you were there standing looking with your eyes, okay, face helmet, you would see it extraordinarily subtly. We have really exaggerated the contrast so you can see the geometry. If you were there visually, I think it would be very hazy, very ambiguous, very gauzy. It's, it's, it's shattered to hell. It's been sliced to ribbons by erosion, by sandstorms over how many tens or hundreds of millennia. But the fact mm. that the geometry is there and it's, it's detected by the CCDs, which have incredible linearity. That's why CCD cameras are so ideal for science because you can shine lights on them with 100,000 to one difference in illumination and you'll get signal at both ends of the uh, uh, light curve. So mm -hmm. what we're seeing is subtle and we're obviously, that's why you've re every frame that I post as enhanced because we're enhancing the contrast so you see it. But what I find interesting is that your bizarre concave geometry is visible even when you don't enhance it. Yeah, that's true. And that's why I, this is, again, this is a study which I went through and that was my item number uh, five, but mm -hmm. item number four, I went with the flow and you can see there are three images in there. The, the second one is interesting because that's when I'm pulling the geometry out. And what you see there is a 12 sided uh, polygon on the outer rim in yellow, mm. and then you see a six-sided uh, polygon on is the inner of the set, the middle ring. And again, why do I choose these side-sided figures, and why do I set, you know, choose these scales and so on? Is because I can see it not only in this image, but I can also see it in the map, and I can see it in the topographical map. I can see it in the photographs of Gale Crater, uh, not Gale Crater, excuse me, Jezero Crater and so on. So you're so, saying you can see the same geometry in the MRO or S imagery looking down from orbit that we're seeing on the Percy imagery looking up from inside the crater. I'm seeing that there is a correlation, yes. There, there is some fudge factor in between the two, but yes, there is some co correlation. And out of all the different studies I've done, this is the third sort of more detailed study I've done, I'm seeing a 12-sided figure on the outer perimeter and a six-sided figure on the inner perimeter, which works with both the crater image and also with the sky cam, uh, not sky cam, the, uh, the pasted image of the sky, which you presented. Uh, you mind if I ask a simple question? No, 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 John, by all means. What is, you know, you're postulating some kind of structure in the atmosphere over Jezero Crater. We have, you know, movies of the descent, and, you know, they had no trouble landing in Jezero Crater. So whatever structure was there has to have been kind of a subtle atmospheric thing rather than a solid structure, well, because not, otherwise they wouldn't be able to leave Not actually, because this is incredibly moth-eaten. If you look at the EDL footage going, and I haven't shown you any, a tenth of what we've got, you can see it. And uh -huh. talk, talk about seeing it on the 
descent imagery with both cameras, looking up and looking down. Yeah. Well, uh, I'm just I'm just saying that if there was a dome, a glass dome over Jezero Crater, they wouldn't have been able to land there. I just I'm just pointing that out. It depends uh, all you on know, John, 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 hang on. John, we don't have a lot of time. Yeah. It depends on the density. And the western part is much more eroded than the eastern part. And we came in, I think they, they specifically designed their trajectory to land through the holiest part of the dome so they actually made it to the ground. I'm, I'm wondering if, if one side has compl- collapsed completely. So if, if, if it is there, then half of it's fallen away, leaving a, an open cave, effectively. Well, if side. it all wasn't there, when you look at your number five, or I'm sorry, number four, the middle one, looking up, you wouldn't mm. see anything. I have, we, we see I remnants. I that I have actually been called the holy man of Mars. Even <laughs> my socks are holy. That means <laughs> Now, now. I've just, I, hey, okay, I just, I just wanted to ask that question. So you're saying that this thing has to be partially collapsed? Yes. It, it is quite interesting to see these patterns, but as you mentioned, you're you're really enhancing things, and I, I it's possible you're seeing kind of pixel patterns in no, the camera no, itself. No, 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 because. If, uh, it, if it was in the camera, hang on, Ron. If it was in the camera, it would be frame why? dependent on the camera orientation. This is dependent okay. on the geographic orientation of the crater itself, irrespective of the orientation of the camera. Okay, Ron, go ahead. Okay, so you answered that question. Okay. Very good. All right. I was, yeah, it wasn't a follow-up question. I was just going to contribute that, uh, Dr. Brandenburg, I think... I don't think Richard completely agrees with this, but they, <laughs> I think they got lucky. There's a hole in the top. There's a big hole in the top. And yeah. the, there's only so much of it left, and it's virtually impossible to see unless the lighting is just right. Because it's, uh, it's, on, an, it's on a colossal scale, but the pieces that are there are still quite sturdy. There's just a lot of space in between them. I mean, we get a false image even from all of those uh, sky cam and, and what have you uh, imagery. You know, it's not it's it's not that it's not that solid. But I think they were. I think there was a great sigh of relief when they made it to the ground. Myself, I don't. I, I don't well, think that they had it. Well, yeah, and, but I don't uh, think they had. A, I don't think they had any great certainty that they. Uh, they wouldn't have a problem because they. I do believe they knew that there was something here. Now there isn't a dome over everything, and every place that might Ron, be like Chinese landed where they did. I think to corroborate yeah, what you're saying is, if you look at my item number six, there's a 3D model setup of a geometric structure as if it is a geometric dome. Okay. And yeah, I'm sorry, we'll, is this Andrew. This is Tim Saunders. Tim Tim Saunders, our our nautical engineer. Okay. In my item number six, in Tim's fast link item number six, you can see that is the setup of a 3D model, a new 3D model I made. And I think what Ron is suggesting is that the the center in the plan view, the top left side, the plan view, there's a hexagonal uh, shape. I, I believe that there's a potential that if it is there, then that part is missing. 
So that could be your hole in the top, which is that sort of aperture-shaped Okay, you have to understand, John, the way this thing entered. It entered the upper atmosphere several hundred miles to the west of Jezero at 13,000 miles an hour. The atmosphere uh, velocity was taken up by the heat shield, so the velocity goes from 13,000 to about 950 miles an hour when they pop the supersonic parachutes at about seven, eight miles up. Okay, and it it rapidly slows down. So the trajectory goes from being kind of horizontal to falling on the parachute at the at the parachute velocity, which is drastically less and getting a lot less as the air resistance takes over. So by the time they reach the dome, they're falling gently on a parachute. And if they encountered something hard, unless the parachute got hung up, it would just slide off and they'd go through the holes. Well, that's probably true, yes. They'd we have, also be somewhat center, centered by the air coming up from the dome. Anytime you've got an enclosed space, you're going to have some heating. And so there's going to be, an, there's going to be a slight upward breeze <laughs> to uh, confound everything else. Now, that's think of one of those sure. plastic... Think of one of those plastic balls floating on a uh, floating on a vacuum cleaner. Oh, how interesting! Yeah, yeah, I ever tried that. that as a kid. Yeah, and it, it, on a you know on a on a grand scale, but a much less uh, profound to a much less profound okay. degree, perhaps. Guys, probably some we, of that. It might have centered it. We we have under two minutes left, Tim. Well, we're not going to make it tonight, but if, well, we're going to continue tomorrow my... night. Exactly. Yeah, we'll pick this up well, tomorrow if night. Jump, if you jump on my image number seven, it will give you a glimpse of what it may look as if you were inside the dome. And that's a model of perseverance there inside the dome, if it's a geometrical structure and if it's in perfect new state. So have a little look, and then we can pick it up on the other side of tomorrow. Super. John, I need to send you more data. There's a lot more da- data than we had time to do. <laughs> to present tonight, okay? Oh, okay. Very good. <laughs> okay. All very interesting. A- anybody have some uh, final thoughts? I had a question that I couldn't squeeze in there. Okay. Uh, for um, When you were talking about radiation, completely off the line here, is there a time frame for, the, uh, for that? Um, um, I mean, yeah, I know you said it's well, stable. Well, it lasts a long time, but can you... T- Yes, the problem with the xenon spike is that xenon-129 is stable. So once it forms, it's just, it just, it's around forever. Um, ah. There's no diminution or anything that can be tracked? We have run out of the, runway. The one date we have is uh, 180 million years, and that apparently corresponds with the last part of when the ocean was still there. Okay. On guys, Mars. guys. The program's ending. Okay. <laughs> Tune in tomorrow night, same time, same bat channel, when I'm going to have uh, my guest talking about the Great Pyramid, potential connections to Mars, and we will continue this discussion, same time, same bat channel, tomorrow night. Until then, third star on the left, straight on till morning. Good night, everyone. <laughs>